Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 114 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. I am the beast with the least, joined as always by the co-host with the most, Matt Feuerstein. And today we have a very special episode. We're covering one of the biggest shows we've covered. We're covering ROH's very first show outside of the U.S., their first show in the U.K., which is very timely given that All In is coming to Wembley. And there's really only one guest that would be appropriate. We got multiple requests for this person. They've been on the show multiple times before. You might know them from Alan's Pro Rest Paradise at the Pro Wrestling Torch, as well as their work on the Pro Wrestling Torch uh, newsletter itself. You might know them from just basically a million other things from Dr. Keith Presents podcast on F4W back in the day, whether they're wrestling announcing or so many things, or just all being an all-around good egg. Uh, Alan Cunahan, we're so glad oh, to God, have I you. I thought you were going to announce Rob Naylor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you cannot stay for the whole show, so we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have you just up top to give some thoughts about this, but you were actually at the show we were covering today, which is uh, ROH is Unified, weren't you? I you made the trip. That. I, I am playing the role of Joe Gagne here, uh, but it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a show in in my neck of the woods, so to speak. I did have to get onto a plane, but in these days, um, or in, in the, that sort of era, uh, having a show in the UK may as well have been having a show in my back garden because yeah, that was. The idea of Ring of Honor coming that close to me was a huge deal in the mid-2000s, and this was uh, very much like a big event uh, of that year. And um, it's funny, I was was talking to Sarah earlier, letting her know I was doing this uh, tonight, and um, uh, I mentioned kind of what it was I was talking about, and and she just goes, Jesus, how can you remember anything from 2006? And, <laughs> and I was like, it was the Ring of Honor show in 2006. It was unified. How could I not remember? I think she she has she's mistaken if she thinks my life got more exciting than that or <laughs> unified uh, in 2006. But uh, um, yeah, like uh, I, I suppose I'm just gonna like lab about a few different random memories and stuff like that from in and around the show uh my the vibes going to the show and and the show itself so lads you jump in with with any questions or whatever uh, as i go but um yes it's going to be kind of off the top of the head stuff but uh yeah um like i said this was a really big deal and it was a really big deal in a similar way that a, a year and And three months earlier, the Wrestling Channel's International Showdown was a really huge deal for the the UK wrestling fan market. And UK and Ireland, I I should note, because it was very much like the the Wrestling Channel itself was was based in Ireland. And um, Yeah, so for our listeners that might not know exactly, the Wrestling Channel was a channel in the United Kingdom and I presume Ireland where it was a full-fledged wrestling channel, like kind of like the Fight Network in North America now, which currently owns Impact. And they actually aired Ring of Honor. So ironically, it was the only the UK was the only place at this time that ROH had TV. Like, do you remember what they were showing? Like were a bunch yeah. of people watching Ring of Honor back then? Uh, in- well, as um, so I did a couple of shows on uh, Paris Paradise with Sean Herbert, who was basically the the main guy behind the wrestling channel. And um, 
he uh, a, a fellow Irishman, and, and he, uh, he he as people have learned over time, was basically the the only thing that did ratings uh, on that channel was the old world of sport, and um, <laughs> because like essentially like all these because like the ITV world of sports stuff, which was obviously a huge deal in the UK um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It just really essentially stopped at the end of the 80s um, when when Greg Dyke made the uh, um, uh, decision to take wrestling off ITV. And, uh, and that's a whole other story. But um, the people who were huge fans of that in their youth or, or whatever, they would have been older at this point, a lot older, and they would have probably not seen any of that stuff in since it was since it happened. And then all of a sudden, just flipping through their channels on Sky Digital, they see that the wrestling of their youth or their early adulthood is, is on the TV again, and it got a huge audience. And um, uh, it was the a lot of like the world of sport that you can get online now and there's so much of it online it's from the airings that happened on the pressing channel it's all in really high quality and everything because the itv masters were obviously very good because it's like it was the uh, one of the biggest stations in the uk so they're obviously going to have very good uh, uh video quality on their on their old stuff and um yeah like the the wrestling channel got that's what they got their money off that and like a uh, babe station that would come on after hours and uh and uh different things like that but uh yeah things like czw and uh, iwa mid-south ted petty invitational tournaments and the ring of honor shows and pro wrestling noah and and uh rf shoot interviews and everything else that someone like me was just like gaia gaia was on there like all this stuff that the likes of me and and other hardcore fans were just doing backflips over being able to watch them like oh it's wednesday at two o'clock um i don't have any college class let's see what's on tv oh i'll watch some uh, new japan like this was amazing for us but none of this stuff was being watched by like the general public and this was this was a channel on sky digital just a couple of channels up from all the sky sports channels so like it it really wasn't that um like it, it had quite a prominent slot like on the on the epg and uh yeah it was it was a huge part in cultivating a very big uh wrestling um uh, on online wrestling kind of group uh the between between the wrestling channel forums and ring of honors forums and uh, a few other bits there was a, a real a real passionate hardcore uk and ireland fan base so this uh, around is why, this that is why so many of our listeners are from the uk and ireland it seems like yeah, and so, and so many of us are still around as well. It's like it's it's crazy, and and you know, um, it, uh, it. But the Wrestling Channel's International Showdown show was basically going to be. This was in March two thousand five. It, it was basically bringing together this community in the biggest way possible, and they had matches represented from all the different uh, um, 
things that aired on the station. So you had a Noah match, you had a CM Punk versus Samoa Joe in their final match before the AEW match. You had um, uh, AJ Styles versus Christopher Daniels as like the TNA. Oh yeah, TNA was on there too. Um, uh, I, sh- I should mention that the Ring of Honor that aired on there was like basically the DVDs just broken down into like an hour this week, an hour the next week, an hour the week after type thing, and ads inserted uh, throughout the show. So it was um, very much a non-made-for-TV product put <laughs> in for in a TV format. So it was funny, but uh, um, the, uh, uh, the 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 really funny thing about um, international shows was like you had all these matches, but of course you had a World of Sport offer match and. Even though World of Sport was basically one of the things keeping this channel afloat, um, I think it was uh, Mal Sanders and Steve Gray, I think, were the two wrestlers. They got booed out of the building by these 21-year-old hardcore Ring of Honor and TNA fans who did not want to see these old geezers doing their rounds of wrestling. Like, this was not it was they got such a bad response and uh, it was uh, very ironic in hindsight and then like once like the likes of chris hero and people like that started like popularizing that style of wrestling to those fans then all of a sudden it was like oh i love my johnny saint and all this (laughs) became it became in vogue at then but uh um like with the the wrestling channel any or the international showdown any big event that happened in the UK at that point, it either went through the show stealer, Alex Shane, the biggest hustler <laughs> carny uh, you'll ever meet. And uh, it either went through him or if it didn't, he was going to do something to screw with us. <laughs> Your ring might not make it to wherever it was going or, or something. But like Alex Shane was this, uh, he was this wrestler who just had, and he was he was young. He was he was in the FWA, kind of one of their kind of big stars in the the early two thousands. And he was like a young guy, um, and he just had a real head for marketing and PR and business. And as like a guy in his early twenties, he branched out to being way more than just a wrestler on the scene. And everything was going through him for the most part. And he was just such a carny hustler like uh and he uh, after uh, he latched onto the wrestling channel to produce or promote that show with them and then he latched on to ring of honor like oh my god him and carrie silken were like best pals going around rest, uh international showdown like you could see him just schmoozing with carrie the whole time networking making that relationship and then when carrie silken was bringing ring of honor over to the uk Alex Shane was the point man. So here you are a year and a bit later and Ring of Honor is happening in the UK and Alex Shane is kind of the guy on the local side bringing the show there. And um, yeah, uh, uh, 
I'm sure just I would say I could do three hours on yeah. Alex Shane's stories and everything, but I'm sure they're all out there and you don't need to be repeated on this show in this segment. But uh, I can tell um, you that Carrie Silken is does not seem to feel as hot chummy about Alex Shane listening to him on podcasts now. Oh, as oh, he everyone, did back. Everyone ends up falling. Everyone ends up hating him. Like he will, he yeah. will burn everyone and everything, and then yeah. just start something new. Uh, that's how he's operated for. 20 years um so yeah but uh speaking of speaking of the speaking of the fwa roh did sort of kind of technically have another co-promoted show in the uk in 2003 it was an fwa roh show frontiers of honor which we did not review but technically they have another one a week after the show they have frontiers of honor too right right but but frontiers of honor was, was, was sort of like something they sort of touted at the beginning, whereas they never really talk about Frontiers of Honor 2 on ROH DVDs. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to see if Alex Shane wrestled on Frontiers of Honor. Let's see, cage I match. Um, yeah, James, AJ Styles versus Johnny Storm. Jack Xavier versus Mikey Whipwreck. Mikey Whipwreck was over as a uh, Ring of Honor representative. <laughs> That's strange. Samoa Joe versus Zebra Kid. Um <laughs> Uh, Zebra Kid Ring of Honor interactions is funny. Um, uh, that's, the, Kid, that's the match that made Ring of Honor, the Ring of Honor title a world title. That's when Joe came back. He was like, "Now it's a world title because I wrestled the Zebra Kid." Do you know uh, much about Zebra Kid, guys? No, I do not. <laughs> he is the uh, older brother of um, Soraya. Uh, wow, Page. Um, he is the the youngest son, or sorry, the oldest son of. Uh, um, Ricky Knight Sr. And um, he is uh, Roy Knight, this is, is his name. And he had uh, spent a, a, a decent chunk of time in jail. And he is a known hard man, as they would say uh, in, in the okay. UK. Not someone to be messed with. And um, I forget the exact line and the specifics beside it, but Basically, there was a match in the UK. I think it was at the King of Europe Cup. I'll get skewered for forgetting this, but uh, um, Davy Richards tried to be big shot, tough guy, bully no. um, for his match with Zebra Kid, and it didn't go well for him. Nobody warned him? You knew this, but uh, Davy Richards didn't get smartened up? No, no. I think people just... Uh, had rice quiet smiles on their faces. They saw Davy probably uh, mouthing off and acting in whatever way he was he was planning on acting. And uh, yeah, I think it was kind of a situation of like, I'll carry you, I'll carry you through things out there. Uh, basically, treating like Zebra Kid like he was just like this young scrub or something like that. When yeah, it didn't it didn't go well for Davy? Um, was the the moral of the story? But. Uh, yeah, Alex Shane was on here teaming with uh, <laughs> Nikita and Ulf Herman. Nikita being uh, um, Birchall's uh, sister. I can't remember her name in the WWE. And uh, Ulf Herman being uh, um, uh, Herman the German. Was that his name in ECW? Um, but yeah, so they they were on there. Um, uh, Flash Barker versus Loki. Christopher Daniels versus Jody Fleisch main event. So like that was kind of before that was just before the wrestling channel. So like things hadn't exploded as far as the fan base. And a lot of the fans 
we were a lot of us were like in the same age, you know, like sort of born mid eighties type thing. So a lot of us were still sort of teenagers when mm. that was happening, and then we were in our early twenties at this point in two thousand six and two thousand five when those big shows. So the timing wise, it all just kind of worked out, and and you know the the Ring of Honor show did really well in the Liverpool Olympia. Um, which was a show that uh, or a venue which Carrie Silken um, didn't have to have his arm twisted in running. I think it probably was a bit expensive, but Carrie didn't mind spending that money because it had a history of like the Beatles playing there. I'm not a music guy, so there was some significance to do with the Beatles and some yeah. I don't know famous concert they did in that building. Well, it's Liverpool, but, um, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was uh, oh my god, such a great venue! Like oh, I would, I would, I, I would go and watch wrestling in that venue every day of the week. Like it was so nice. Like those balconies were, yeah, it, it was just tremendous. And um, you know, I would, I would be in <laughs> over the years that that followed. I would be able to go to a lot more wrestling shows a lot more regularly as the, the UK and Ireland wrestling boom happened over the years. Um, I was in a lot of venues that didn't, weren't a patch on, on the Liverpool Olympia and was only ever back there for, for Ring of Honor in, in 2007. But uh, yeah, it was, um, it was like, to me, as I said, it was a really big deal. Like I was obviously following all the announcements, wondering what the card would be in a similar way. <clears throat> I wouldn't say in a similar way to how I am now with All In because, you know, I'm just that bit more jaded and like, part will be what it'll be for, for All In. Um, I'm not going to get too excited one way or, or the other, um, but I think it's probably how a lot of fans who are, are maybe younger or whatever, haven't been to as many shows. I'd say it's it's how a lot of fans feel about All In, like where they're just really anticipating these announcements and and super curious what the card and fantasy booking the card. Do you remember? Do you remember how sure. far in advance they announced the big matches on this? The two, the two main events. I remember it was. I feel like the tag was known pretty early, uh, but definitely the main event was held back quite a quite a bit, um, which was something that would happen a lot with Gabe show with Ring of Honor shows because Gabe would. Be, he didn't want to kind of give away his booking of of shows that were happening before this, you know. So, um, and Danielson and McGuinness had, which um, you guys have obviously covered uh, um, in in recent shows. Danielson and McGuinness had been having a a series of matches. Um, it never occurred to me because uh, so, like, obviously, there's the lag with DVDs and live experience, and it was a bigger lag probably for me than than some of the, the US fans because just it'd be a bit slower to get the DVDs, but not all that much. But also like, you know, a lot of the US fans would be getting more shows so they'd have more like in their area or maybe they lived in New York, but they'd go to Philly shows as well as New York shows or Jersey shows or whatever. So like there was they were more in time with the product than I would have been. So like Nigel to me leading into this and I remember specifically my friend that I went with, um, him as well, like our reaction when it was announced as Nigel versus Danielson, we were kind of, it didn't feel like 
a main event and again that goes to the all-in tie-in i think it's it's kind of the same for like a lot of people who were expecting whatever now it obviously has become a hot match but i think for a lot of people mjf versus adam cole like if you didn't have the last few weeks of tv built like if you hadn't seen that and you just if you were still in may or june but in terms of what you're you're watching of AEW and you were told that the main event of all in is adam cole versus mjf you'd probably be like uh okay i kind of expected something more and um, I, guess, I guess that speaks well of the booking both in our in that era and AEW now that like a match that wouldn't have been much a couple months ago did become hot in time for the for the show itself. That's uh, it you know, became legendary. Like yeah. yeah, this was like this remains to me in in my and I, I won't go into to huge detail on the match itself, but it remains to me like one of my absolute top tier when I consider the best matches I've ever seen live. It is on the short list of maybe I don't know three. I would say wow. that I would choose between depending on the day. Um, it's like Shingo Osprey, best of super juniors final at Sumo Hall. This, um, Shingo, uh, here's the theme here Shingo Susumu, <laughs> Dragon Gate UK, the third one. Those are probably the three. Maybe I, 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 I don't really like thinking about this one in the same vein because I was doing commentary, so it's kind of hard to. It's a different experience, but Ilya Dragunov versus Walter 16 carat final would would be the other one. But uh, so yeah, like it's it's right there. Um, it was it was epic. Um, I remember like there was the the feeling, the wave of emotion and support for Nigel that built throughout the match is like something I've experienced very few times of wrestling with the intensity that it had and the absolute anger and disappointment that might incite someone even to throw a bottle at Brian Danielson <laughs> um, was was palpable and I felt this uh, up in the uh, up in the in the balcony and um I remember specifically when Danielson stood, looked to the balcony, which I think was where the hard cam was, and held the two titles up as Final Countdown was playing. And I went from being super annoyed that Nigel didn't win to just having this moment of clarity of, oh my God, Danielson is the best. This is the best reign ever. This was, I'm, it was just, like he absolutely him winning was just so perfect at that moment to me it was like yes they pulled the carpet out from under us but god it was perfect and it just i i don't know as as cool like we'll never know what it would have felt like for nigel to win that match but in many ways i i think the, that moment i have seeing danielson stand there like i can close my eyes and still picture it um of just an appreciation of what a world champion at their very peak was. And like, I think in that moment, you know, there's probably, it's probably a similar level to what, you know, fans in, in the East coast might've had 
at the end of the September match with Kenta, um, and I'll be interested to hear your comparison of the two title defenses um, when I when I get to the shows. In uh, I I just finished um, I just finished uh, what was the name of the show? Uh, the one before Buffalo Stampede with, uh, oh, with uh, Enter, Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. Yeah, I just finished Enter the Dragon the other day. Uh, with you guys and Jeff Schwartz, and uh, so I'm a bit behind. Um, we we appreciate the fact that you're still even listening to this show, Alan. So <laughs> any 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 time that I hear anyone actually listen to an episode, I'm like, really? But thank you. <laughs> so I, no problem. I've actually picked I've actually picked up the pace lately because I ditched a couple of podcasts that were my rotation that just kind of got a bit bit bored with, and I uh, oh man, and and I um. No, not yours. Yours has has benefited from it mm. because now I, I was like, "What's what's something I can listen to that I always enjoy?" Ah, you know what? I'll Aww. listen to a, I'll listen to yeah, Matt and Trevor, and uh, then like yeah, I keep asking that question, and then keep coming back to you guys, so I can listen to a lot <laughs> more. But That's I try, but I'm trying to squeeze. Depending on the era and how familiar I am with it, I um, uh, or how like how long it is since I've seen the shows. I try to watch the shows before I listen to you guys do it, so it's uh, it slows me down a little bit. But um, anyway, yeah, this was a great moment, and um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was special um, to see Danielson uh, just at that point in time. Oh yeah, that's what I was saying. It was like the the, the Kenta match. Um, he, I think, him reigning supreme at the end of that match probably felt similar for the fans that were live there but um it was just Danielson as this dominant champion but I think with the Kenta match there's always the knowledge that he was injured at that point and how much more how much longer could he go whereas at the end of this Nigel match he just seemed like an iron man he just seemed indestructible and that no one was going to touch him um and uh, the, the the last thing I'll say about this main event before we just touch on a few other things is, um, uh, did you guys um, note the the referee and that they weren't a regular Ring of Honor referee for this match? Yes. Yeah, they, Ring of Honor obviously could not bring – well, they, they could have I mean, if they want to lose more money. But, yeah, they, they had to use uh, UK referees. And I actually thought he did a really good job at the very end of that main event when he just dives on Danielson. So did um, how many referees were on the show? Do you remember? Oh, was it two? It was probably either two or three. I would imagine. Wait, wait, Alan, Alan, was it yep. one? <laughs> no, there was at least two. I think. I, I think, think there was at least two. And, and do you know if this was the only match that I'm specifically not mentioning the person's name because I'm gonna say it in a sec? Uh, but. Um, was this referee in the main event? Was he on any of the other matches on the undercard? Did you know, sir? I did not I notice. Did not note. I can't be sure. Okay, surprising because he was like the tallest person in the ring all night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I assumed he was on other matches, but I, 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 yeah, I don't want to say. I didn't want to say for sure because I wasn't paying specific was. attention to it. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I should have checked it, but I, I just couldn't remember. I, I think I'm pretty sure. I don't think I'm confusing it with the 2007 shows, but I'm pretty sure that Rev Pro Booker Andy Quilden, who was very young at the time, like probably 20, I'd say, he did, I think he did some of the matches. But um, the referee for the main event was one, uh, Tassilo Young, who is the head referee and one of the 
um, promoters slash owners and has been pretty much since its existence of WXW. So, uh, yeah, someone I'm very, very familiar with who looked unrecognizable to uh, how I've always known him to look since, like, I don't know, 2009 when I first met him. Um, He uh, has been bald and clean-shaven since 2009 at least. And here That's a mistake. That that was some fantastic facial hair he was sporting on this show. It was an incredible, incredible handlebar mustache and a big (laughs) head of hair. Um, Yeah, a lot of people who know Taz... uh, and know of this giant referee that ref that match always are surprised when they're like when they find out that, that was him because he just really is unrecognizable aside from the height but uh, he's told me um that he essentially was on a non-wrestling um vacation in the uk with his partner at the time and uh, he just got a call on i think the day of the show um, someone knew who he was in the UK and they needed a ref and um, he was like yeah sure I'll uh, let's do it and uh, I I was googling to see if I could find any more information if there had been interviews or anything where that story was told in any more detail um, and uh, I found an interview with Nigel McGuinness and he said that um, there was like essentially no concern um with Taz being the referee for that match, he was highly respected by both him and Danielson and, and all the wrestlers backstage. And a lot of them had worked in WXW and knew him well, and he was trusted in that uh, in that spot. But uh, yeah, I, I remember a lot of the hardcore Ring of Honor fans who kind of you know were passionate about the product. Those that were like on the ROH forum and stuff that maybe gave him a a bit of a bad response online just because. He was a different, just because he wasn't a usual Ring of Honor ref, and, and he was so, um, he stood out so much for being so tall. And as well, you're yeah. dealing with a, a UK ring, um, which is smaller than the uh, the rings that that Orohatri used to to being in. So again, that makes Taz, you know, take up a lot more of the space. So I think it was just. It was just a, a, a shock to the system to some Ring of Honor fans who are more used to that product and how it's how it comes to them from the US. And, and they were, yeah, they didn't like change. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I, I thought he, from my memory, I, I thought he did a very good good job with with it. In and, and, to, and to be fair, Ring of Honor fans gave shit to the regular referees also. Todd Sinclair got booed pretty much any time his name was announced. Maybe they were unhappy because they couldn't give their usual shit to someone they didn't know. <laughs> Probably. But, uh, uh, yeah, um, so the Aries and Strong versus Jay and Mark match was basically like, so like I thought both these top two matches were amazing. Um, have you seen, carried, have you seen that match at all recently? Uh, probably about two years ago, I think I might have watched it. I've seen it probably about twenty times. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Uh, say, I'll save my thoughts, but I'm just. I was just curious. Yeah, I, I, I certainly know. I've seen it recently enough times over the years to always think it holds up. So I'll be curious if you think differently. Um, it was very of the time in terms of how 
in terms of the style of of tag team act, what's what's the line they they use on commentary? Um, state of the art. State of the art. State of the art. Yeah, this was the state of the art tag team wrestling, and so it was very representative of the best of tag team wrestling at that time. You know, the Briscoes had just come back, and they were pushing kind of like the 2005 show that I just listened to you guys do. You're talking about, and they acknowledge on the show how the, the tag division has kind of gone into a rut. And there's not much happening there. And Jay and Mark and Aries and Strong just brought so much life to it in Ring of Honor. But across the US Indies, like PWG was really um, starting to it's uh, produce some great tag team matches. Just the, the Briscoes return in general, I think, sparked a lot of great tag team wrestling um, in 2006 and 2007 um, across the US Indies. And then. And this match was a, a high watermark for that style and those teams. And yeah, I loved it. And uh, I am famously uh, um, one of my um, one of my big fights with Brian Alvarez back in the day on F4W was over his uh, the Brian and Vinny review of this match. I, um, I, didn't, I didn't fight with him on the board, but I had an f- internal fight with him in my brain because I was real pissed off listening to that back in the day. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, yeah, yeah. He he basically just decided it wasn't a great match because they, like... Didn't do they didn't Southern just, style yeah, tags, basically. They, they didn't do, like, one heat segment, babyface comeback, and, it was, and go home. Like, it was like... Get with the times, man. Yeah, imagine imagine, and, uh, hear, imagine hearing that critique now from someone who isn't Jim Cornette. Like it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I just I just remember like I was twenty one, so I remember writing up like paragraphs on the uh, the F four W board defending this match against Brian, and I remember specifically one of the points I had because I was just getting into all Japan, like old all Japan at this time, and like so I was watching like. So your Kenta Kobashi, Yakiyama, uh, Holy Demon Army tag matches and stuff like that, and uh, I uh, I was like, oh, did did they just did they just get the heat on on Misawa and then make the hot tag and then it was over? No, they go back and forth and and then build and there's stages and, and it's, it's all it's telling a story and uh, just because you don't get it, it's, but yeah, um, uh, so yeah, I was I was very much a um, uh, if there was like a culture, a modern like uh, Twitter style culture war over this match, I was had my flag planted uh, for sure um, on the on the side of this thing. Um, and the Briscoes in general, I think I, I I think I was pretty much one of the the big Briscoe defenders at this time because like they're so appreciated now by everyone. Like no one has said a bad word about the Briscoes as, as a and in ring and as performers in so long, like you, you probably would be surprised if you knew that like in 2006, 2007, they were like considered, Oh, spot monkeys, you know, they were like, um, they were like mildly polarizing, at least mildly, maybe more than mildly polarizing for a little while. Yeah. I, I feel like they were pretty, I think it was the, the, I think the polarization was, was pretty big in terms of maybe it was cause I was so pro, them that i saw it as bigger than what it was but uh yeah it um uh but yeah that match totally delivered it just was exactly what i wanted as a as a fan of at that point and it delivered 
And then it was like those were the two matches. Like, you know, yeah, the, yeah it's interesting. First... It's interesting. The rest of the card, like, you can't really say it's a big show beyond those two matches. Like, you yeah, know, good, good or bad, but it's really matches, not big. <laughs> the first couple of matches kind of lived on the oxygen of just being. Oh my God, we're getting to see Ring of Honor. Like every entrance was like, oh, it's Colcabana. Oh my God. Oh, it's Matt Sidel. Oh my God. Oh, in the flesh. You know, um, hadn't had that reaction since I was at like, uh, 2004, uh, WWE house show for the first time they came to Ireland. It was like, oh my God, Trish Stratus in the flesh. I think next, <laughs> next time I go to an AEW show, I think I want to bring a sign that says, oh my God, Matt Sidel in the flesh. <laughs> um, uh, the, um, so yeah, you know, it was. I, I think I, 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 something that I remember being a thought I had from the time was that that summer I would have been watching a lot of February, March, April Ring of Honor. So the peak of the CZW feud, um, I would say. Well, the peak is probably the end in July, but a lot of the meat of the CZW feud was those first couple of months, like the anniversary show, um, uh, the show in the ECW arena, um, uh, the 100 show. Um, so I was like really super into that. And it had no presence on this show. And um, But having the... I guess Hero was a surprise, right? He came out at yeah. the end of Claudio's match with BJ Whitmer. So that was, that was a big deal, just having Hero show up. Um, so that was cool. And then the only, the, the big standout thing to me on this undercard is the, uh, well, two things. One, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. The FWA heavyweight title match between Robbie Brookside and Chad Collier. I feel like that got a response very similar in vibe to poor Mal Sanders and Steve Gray a year earlier. Um, I don't think people wanted to see that. Um, it is the yeah. least overmatch on the show. Yeah, it's, it's like these the 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 UK fans again. I, I talk about ages because it was we were all kind of similar age you know apart from the kids mm-hmm. in the crowd uh which we'll, we'll, we might get to but uh, um the the core of that audience that went to that show were early 20s the stars to them were the ring of honor stars nobody was a robbie brookside fan i had never seen a robbie brookside match before this show like but i'd heard this- brian danielson mention him on promos yeah, yeah, that might be, it was a name I knew. And he comes out here with his scraggly long hair and his, his shit-looking gear, and it was like, no no one wanted to see it. Now, I was probably politer in my reaction than uh, uh, most of the crowd. Um, but, uh, yeah, they um, they weren't over at all. Um, and But the thing that stands out more to me is because I was such a huge Japanese wrestling fan or becoming such a huge Japanese wrestling fan at this point, and particularly of Pro Wrestling Noah and Dragon Gate, um, which were not, not um, coincident or not, not uncoincidentally, uh, the two promotions that Ring of Honor were hooked up with. Um, uh Sua and uh, Go Shiozaki formed a team, and Go was um, 
a, a young boy in, in Noah at this point. Es- essentially, he hadn't really started to get a big push or anything. Uh, Sua was very much the Noah Jr. heel, but he had had a background in, in Toriumon, which obviously became Dragon Gate, and he had left uh, uh, that promotion. And, and, and he, But he was... And he gets a big spot the next night against uh, Brian Danielson, but I, Sua just wasn't a guy that was really, I think, over with with the fans at that point and outside of Japan. Like he he was probably more well known to the fans who were into Japanese wrestling in the early two thousands. Um, a lot of like DVD VR posters and stuff like that, and um. I would get a, a much bigger appreciation of him later, but he wasn't a guy who you were going to put on a show like this, and it wasn't gonna. He wasn't gonna have put in like the level of effort. He wasn't like he wasn't looking to steal the show in a way that like Shima and the Dragon Gate guys would be looking to do when they came over. He's just looking to get in and out, and he's got a very heelish style. And it's not one that's going to, it's not like a drop in and, and do a showcase match type thing. But Sua in the right environment, like he's with the, where he's actually like giving big effort, like his match with Kenta at Budokan Hall um, for the Noah Jr. title, like he is incredible. But it's just he's not suited to this kind of drop him in cold type environment. Didn't he wrestle and, Kenta at the uh, Tokyo Dome? Sorry? Didn't he wrestle Kenta at the Tokyo Dome? Am I mis- misremembering uh, that? Uh, no, it was Budokan Hall. Okay. Well, then I'm just going to edit my mistake out. So no one knows that I made it. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, they, they did two matches in 2005 in Budokan. Uh, the first is super short, and then they would a scuzzy finish, and then they play off that in the later one. And uh, uh, they use Joe Higuchi a lot, um, the, the, the great uh, old, bald referee from all Japan, very recognizable, sadly no longer with us, but uh, lived a great life. Um, Joe Higuchi. He, he he was there at ringside and, and they play off him in a big way and he restarts the match and yeah it's 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 really good stuff but uh um Sua's UK he was over in the UK for a while at this period um with go uh, and it's probably most famous for a promo um that Sua cut backstage um, when he was being interviewed, I'm not sure if it was someone on whatever show he was on, like, or if it was like a media person or whatever. But there's this famous interview where it's like a minute long. It's on YouTube and it's um, legendary to a, a lot of uh, UK fans um, where he's asked about uh, um, UK wrestling and uh, if he's impressed and his response is, uh, I'll, I'll try to do the impression as, as best I can because it's it's so good. He goes, mm, many, many skinny boys. Nah, shit. Must do necessary training. Must do necessary training. Shit. <laughs> and... It's just such a burial of the scene at that time. 
It was it was classic, um, and the the line is repeated, and the shit is 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 is, is well known to whenever he comes up to uh, uh, fans in, in the UK. That's that's what he's remembered for. But uh, Doug Williams and Jody Fleisch just I don't know. Williams obviously both of them had a, a Ring of Honor history, but I just don't think they were hugely over with the fans that went to this particular show. Um, so yeah, it was, um, uh, I'm trying to think, was there anything else? Um, there was a meet increase before the event. Um, so this I wanted to ask you about. So I was doing some research about this and, um, the Brit wrestling experience podcast, they covered this whole show a few years ago for people that want more, more of the dirt, the dirty side of, of, uh, the UK weekend. But one thing they mentioned, they seem to vaguely remember that not only was this like a meet and greet before the show, but the, I don't know if they remembered if it was this UK weekend or the next year's UK double shot, but that it was, there was an aborted attempt to film an ROH Secrets of the Ring DVD with Gabe answering questions from um, the fans in that meet and greet environment, and apparently the the questions were so bad, including one fan asking, "How's Rob Feinstein doing?" That they shelved the idea to turn it into a DVD. <laughs> like, do you remember anything about that at all? Well, I remember asking Gabe Sapolsky a question. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not how Rob Feinstein is doing. <laughs> no, um, so uh, the to go back to the 2005 International Showdown event, there was a big um, pre-show uh, Q&A meet and greet thing that lasted a couple of hours on the afternoon of the show that was in this awesome venue. Like it was a, across the road from the Coventry Sky Dome. It was called um, Jumpin' Jacks, I believe was the name of it. Uh, I could have that wrong, but it was just this cool kind of restaurant, nightclub kind of place during the day. Um, but it was really big and spacious, and there was a big stage for the wrestlers to get up on. And it was just, it was the perfect setting. Like, I don't know if they got some kind of a deal on this thing or if it was just cheap to begin with because it wasn't going to be used at this point in the day, but it was so perfect and i have so many great memories of that whole thing uh the samoa joe and, and cm punk uh, q and a's um meeting all the people on that show like just it was awesome so naturally that was such a success that there was uh, an attempt to repeat that here um on this uh similarly alex shane produced or promoted event unfortunately the venue that was used I can't remember for the life of me if it was attached to the Liverpool Olympia or if it was a different building nearby, but it was so terrible. We were, for the Q&A, we were crammed, and this was the middle of August, it was probably really warm, crammed in this tiny little nondescript bland meeting room, and the meet and greet itself was happening in the corridor outside this meeting room, this narrow, skinny corridor that you basically had wrestlers. Um, there was no room to like sit down and have a table in front of them. So they were basically just standing up against the wall and then the fans were coming by and they were standing up against the other side of the wall. And that was, there was no space in between. And it was like, it just did not work. And like nobody, was um 
there there was nobody there who was um, competent to like take the reins on the situation and, and try to improve it. Um, I'm not sure if there was much that could even be done to improve it, but it was a disaster. There was no lighting in this corridor. It was pitch black, essentially. So you, I took photos with different people, and I, I, I didn't keep any of them because you basically the photos just come out terribly because it's so dark. Um, my memory of standing in that cramped hallway, uh, two specifically, one. Claudio was wearing his big pink suit that he wore sometimes for his entrances around this time. And the other thing was uh, Rockstar Spud just standing there. Um, Oh, he wasn't Rockstar Spud at this time. He was still Spud. Um, uh, Current, is he Spud in WWE? I can't remember what it is. Drake Maverick. Drake Maverick, yes. Drake Maverick. Uh, He was just standing there amongst the fans. And I remember him when I was beside him at one point and, and he was just telling uh, a couple of fans um, about how much his, his t-shirt cost. It's like, yeah, I paid a hundred quid for this. It's top notch. And uh, um, yeah, that, that was Spud bragging oh, about how much God. he paid for his t-shirt was, uh, <laughs> was the thing that stands out to me. Um, but then in the meeting room for the shitty Q and a, I remember Claudio and Davy Richards doing it. And I just remember them both being uh, in kayfabe, which I just thought was lame. Um, I remember thinking Davy was like a fire hydrant. Like I was shocked at how just thick he was. Um, And I don't really remember anyone else from the show talking at that except Gabe and Gabe was up there for a while talking I do remember there were some bad questions and it wasn't particularly good um, but I know that I asked him about Takeshi Morishima and oh, if he would oh. ever want to bring him into Ring of Honor um, because Morishima had just had I think two weeks earlier um, no, a month earlier uh, there was the Morishima and Rikio versus Kenta and Marafuji tag at Budokan for Noah. And it was one of just my favorite matches of my early Japanese wrestling fandom. They just killed it. It was amazing. And um, uh, I asked Gabe if he had seen that match. And um, he confirmed he had. And he was so impressed by Morishima. And I think he made a Terry Gordy comparison. And I talked about how amazing it was that he could move the way he moved and the things he'd do. And I was marking out that Gabe agreed with me and smiling and nodding along. And uh, um, I think Gabe... Alan, yeah, is but, it safe to say you're responsible for Morishima's entire Ring of Honor run? No, I think it, based <laughs> on the response I got, I think Gabe was already well on board with trying to make that happen. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, um, it, uh, I, I think Gabe probably watched that match and right there and then decided, yeah, I want him to be my world champion if I can. So, um, uh, but yeah, it was a glimpse into, um, into the future, I suppose there, or the, the very near future. But, uh, um, yeah, uh, that's about it as far as things I was I was thinking of when I was thinking back to this show. I, I didn't rewatch it so um, the specifics of, of the show itself are, are kind of, again, it's it's been a while since I watched um, 
the top two matches maybe a year or two and then the undercard I, I probably watched when I got the DVD and didn't watch again after I would, <laughs> I would think well Alan don't you worry about that because we will cover that all next and you have been very generous with your time both Matt and Alan not feeling the greatest and honestly giving us an hour is uh way more than I've been talking for an hour yes you went oh above and beyond I'm, Alan and we really appreciate I'm it I'm so sorry <laughs> it's, it's a, no it's you you were great it, it's an enhancement it's an enhancement to the podcast yes. I promise people and, just um, listen to me blab for an hour that is <laughs> disgraceful oh uh, honestly you said so many um, things that like lock into stuff I'm going to be talking about on the show that I did for like the prep, like the Alex Shane stuff and so much. So when you listen back to this show, when you finally get to it in your queue in uh, 2027, you will be impressed by how well you set us up. So that's right. Alan, thank you so much. Um, thank you guys. That thank was, you for your service. Yes. Thank you again. We really, really, really appreciate it. You're the best. It's always an honor to talk with <laughs> you guys. Okay, as, check out Alan on the PW Torch where he does lots of great stuff. He talks about basically if if Alan doesn't talk about it, it's not good wrestling. So um, the, the, the two things I'm particularly uh, proud of that I have going for the last little while are um, two series that we're doing. I uh, have basically a history on my show of introducing little mini series to the show and then uh, dropping them um, <laughs> uh, before they get any momentum. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but I've got two that now have been going successfully for a long time, and I'm I'm really happy with them. Um, and that is the uh, 34L30 series, where um, yes, it is a playoff ESPN 3430. Um, 30 wrestlers in my now over. 30 years of wrestling fandom, 30 of my favorite wrestlers joined by 30 great guests. Um, oh, we've done probably about 18 episodes so far. And I'm so proud of like, all those shows, like just the quality of the guests have, has, has really been the thing that carries up. I love those shows. They're, they're evergreen. You can go listen to them whenever. And um, I think that, I think people will enjoy them. And then the other thing, which we started uh, uh, this year and um, I've been really enjoying it is the uh, what's on the telly, uh, series um, where once a month we, um, myself and a guest, each pick a wrestling TV show from that week in wrestling history and just watch it and riff about it. Um, so we've we've covered everything from uh, Ring of Honor on HDNet to uh, Continental Wrestling uh, last week. Uh, myself and Rich Fan were talking a lot of Adrian Street um, uh, before the the very sad news came out about his passing. Uh-huh. But we were waxing poetic about just how great he was, and uh, yeah, everything in between TNA, WWE, WCW. Um, we've We've covered so much different eras and, and promotions uh, um, on the, the What's on the Telly series so far. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an easy one because there's always different stuff you can go back and find online and watch. So it's, uh, it's something that I can keep going for a while because basically I don't really like talking about modern wrestling all that much unless it's <laughs> AEW with Justin Shapiro. So <laughs> yeah. and Everyone likes uh, talking about anything with Justin Shapiro, so it makes sense. So, Alan, thank you again. And, yeah, everyone should be listening to Alan. I mean, so many hours of great stuff. It's well worth a subscription to The Torch. Alan, thank you again so much for for your time. Thank you, guys. Bye now. See ya. What a good egg Alan is. So, uh, Matt, we gave you a whole bonus hour. And now, Matt, it's down to you and I. 
we got to cover this show. So what you say, we do that. Um, ROH, we are covering Unified. It took place August 12th, 2006 at the Liverpool Olympia in Liverpool, England for a reported crowd of 1400 fans. So I've heard, bunch of rec- I've heard that there's a, a little, a little band that's, that's from that, 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 that town called Liverpool. Um, but I don't remember, I don't, I, don't, I don't remember, I don't remember what they're called. They probably suck. So, um, I did a bunch of research for this episode because this is a big show and because there was, because it's a big show, there's actually more, more people talked about the show than say a random ass ROHB show. And one of the things I researched, Matt, was, uh, I've mentioned this on the show. We referenced it once or twice before on the show, but, uh, Carrie Silken, the old Ring of Honor owner during this era and, uh, current and, uh, Ring of Honor announcer Ian Riccoboni have had a podcast called Last Stop Penn Station and it's a lot of, non-wrestling crazy stories about Kerry Silken's life and a bunch of reminiscing about Ring of Honor. It's well worth going. The show is currently not going, but there's tons of backlogs of shows. And there, the episode five is largely about the UK. And so I actually listened to that episode and wrote down some recap notes of it. But also one thing I didn't recap, you meant, you kept mentioning the Beatles, Carrie being a huge Beatles fan. Uh, he apparently like wanted to go on like sightseeing for the live, all the Liverpool stuff. Like, Hey, I want to see strawberry fields. I want to see, you know, all that stuff. And like the person that cab, like talking him out, like it's, this stuff's really not impressive. Like I could take you to these places, but like strawberry fields is just like a little patch of grass. Like it's not impressive. <laughs> like apparently this was a very, in some ways, disappointing trip for Carrie. Carrie talks about how cold it was. Like he did not expect it to be this cold in August. So, yeah, um, yeah, uh, all in, brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, here's some notes from the last stop Penn stations. There's some really interesting stuff and it really gets you some, some color of why the show, why these two UK shows even took place. So on why they ran the UK in 2006, Carrie notes, like it wasn't ring of honors idea to run the UK. Carrie says, as Alan touched on, set us up perfectly for that UK wrestler, Alex Shane came to talk to him during a winter New York ring of honor show. And Carrie actually goes out to say Shane went to this ROH New York show. He flew himself to the U S on his own dime just to try and woo woo them into running shows in Liverpool and Broxbourne, which are the shows to run for this double shot here. And as, um, as Alan pointed out, Alex Shane, Big UK fixture at this time. Apparently, bad reputation. As Alan touched on, Kerry talks about maybe how he doesn't have the fondest feelings for for Alex, and uh, he, you know, he helped them set up with that show we talked. You touched on the Frontiers of Honor show in 2003, which is not a canon Ring of Honor show, so we never reviewed it. Just like we're not going to cover the Frontiers of Honor two show that happens a week after this because it's not really canon, or the Super Show Alan talked about, which had Ring of Honor participation, but rest for all that. Ring of Honor doesn't even consider those shows really canon because, like, when you they counted up to the 100th show, they did not include those shows. But I guess. Alex Shane had seen the um the success that you know Ring of Honor could have in the UK and so he was like hey how about you guys run and I'll help promote it so um Kerry remembers so Kerry talks about when Alex came to New York to pitch him he says I also remember Alex wanted to go clubbing with me and I declined which I just thought was a funny aside so he goes Alex was familiar with the buildings in Liverpool and Broxbourne 
one that we ended up running that he was pitching us on running. And then Kerry points out something. He says the building Shane had for Broxbourne didn't really make sense because it only held like four or 500 people. And Ian Riccoboni at this point in the podcast points out like, if you sell out that building with all the cost of traveling to the UK overseas to the UK, like you're going to lose money on that show. And Kerry says, yeah, like we knew that. And we were told to focus how well the big Liverpool show the night before would do. And then he was also told that Broxbourne was quote, like a mini second rate Corican hall. So Matt, we'll be the judge of that on the next Oh my show. gosh. Kerry <laughs> um, says they got talked into doing Broxbourne with the idea that it'd be an instant sellout. It looked good on DVD. And it was also about an hour from London. So they'd be close to the airport, which you know, the show, the building probably doesn't have a lot going for you when one of the selling points is eh, it's close to the airport. Um, then Ian asks Kerry, you know, like, who paid for the airfare, stuff like that. Kerry says, I paid for the airfare. Kerry later adds that Alex Shane got a percentage of these shows and that, quote, the mobsters, that's Kerry's words, not mine, that owned and ran the building in Liverpool got a flat fee as well. So uh, Kerry goes on to call these people shady, old-time guys. And he would also later describe Alex Shane as someone who, quote, was always looking for an edge. So, again, you know, Alan touched on that, too. Kerry points out that by this point that ROH had their own lighting rigs, you know, that they had owned to give their U.S. shows a more professional look. And since they couldn't cart those shows overseas, it wouldn't be financially prudent. They had to have a big expense to rent quality lighting rigs for the U.K. shows. And he calls this whole show a very expensive show. Then he notes that after this Liverpool show that we're covering tonight happened, that there was a place near the building that had a special deal, 20 pounds all you can drink. Kerry says the scene as a result was raucous. The Briscoes may have had a little too much to drink. Maybe no, the building, the uh, come on. <laughs> maybe the wrestlers, the the building, the wrestlers were staying. Got a call that night for, for, to a local police constable. Uh, Kerry says the Liverpool show did okay. It was a good crowd, but it was impossible to make any money running in the UK because of all the added costs. Kerry says maybe if they had maximum possible merch sales, they could have. And then he also again points out running Boxborn was insane with the, uh, we, you know, and he says Alex Shane was, quote, going in our pockets, but it was a good trip and good time. So at this point, the podcast, I was like, well, why did you even run in the UK then? And luckily, Ian Riccoboni asked, basically, in a, in a very polite way, asked that question, like, why did you, you know, run in this area? And, um, Kerry points out, he goes, well, you know, if these shows were not financially successful, why'd you run the UK again? The next year. And then Kerry goes, well, these two shows weren't disasters. They weren't so bad that we didn't consider returning. And so basically, you know, Kerry doesn't go in depth, but the impression I got from listening to him and from things he's talked about on other interviews is that because I remember on another last stop Penn Station, he talks about how. Oh, you know, like the only shows we came out ahead on ever while I owned Ring of Honor were the triple shots in 2006 for WrestleMania weekend. And by coming out ahead, I have to assume that means we came out on a profit after just the live ticket and live merch sales. Because I have to assume with shows like Joe versus Kobashi, once the DVD sales came in, they came out ahead on those shows. So uh, my impression, I guess, is that these UK shows, they lost money on them, but it was normal for them to lose money live. So it was like, eh, we didn't lose, uh, you know, more, that much more than we would have lost running most shows apparently that while Carrie owned. Well, that's, so what, we I gonna, that's what I was going to say when you were talking about like you can't make money on this. I'm like, they weren't making money on these live shows. Like, so yeah. it's not like that's not that noteworthy. But it's interesting because we'll get to a note later where it's one of my favorite things to do on the show where we find contradictions from the reporting at the time that painted a rosier picture for Ring of Honor than 
the people involved will paint years later after the fact. And the other one interesting note I want, I want to plant from this thing before we get to other stuff is, um, Carrie actually says, I thought this was really interesting. He says ring of honor used to get a lot of their DVD or so the cases at one point during his ownership, ROH got 20 to 25% of all their DVD orders. He'd say were, were coming from the UK. And he says, so he thought the wrestling channel was good for them. Although Alan, as you just heard, he figured that basically no one was watching anything on the wrestling channel, but world of sport reruns. Well, you know, it could be be that, you know, ROH's viewership or like, you know, DVD buying audience was so small that that no one was actually significant to ROH. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that definitely could be true. Um, in the Pro Wrestling Torch, Gabe Sapolsky stated – he told the – talk to the Torch. He stated that the company's goal was to create a market for ROH in a new country. Quote, this is going to be a great weekend, and our goal is to win over a new market in a new country, he says. This could be the most important weekend in Ring of Honor history as we are looking to build a new market and grow and expand. We want to make a second home in the UK, and we'll get to something again that Gabe says in a minute. Um we kind of brushed over, you know, the the history of ROH in UK before. This was their first official shows in the UK, but they had done the Frontier of Honor show, all that stuff. And in fact, one thing you if you when you look into the show, um a lot of the wrestlers on this show were people that were already in the UK already that Ring of Honor really didn't have to pay the transport for. Or, like we'll get to Chad Collier. Why is he back in Ring of Honor for one weekend, especially when we'll get to Gabe buries the fuck out of him on commentary? Well, because he was already in the UK for a tour. Why is Chris Hero a special surprise? I think he was already in the UK for a tier, for a tour. Why are the Noah tag teams, you know, on this show? They were already in the UK for a tour. Like, there are a lot of guys on the, that, in fact, most of the people, the Ring of Honor guys on this show came to the UK like a day or two early, worked a couple UK shows, and they would stay for like another week after this double shot working other UK shows. So they basically kind of made it like a mini tour that Ring of Honor just happened to do a couple shows in the middle of. Right. Notable like a lot of people from ROH were not there. So Homicide wasn't there. Julia Smokes wasn't there. Samoa Joe wasn't there. Christopher Daniels wasn't there. Um, You know, so some of the the bigger stars. Adam Pierce wasn't there. No Delirious. Um, So, you know, some of the guys they've been using very, very regularly. No Jimmy Jacobs. Um, so they, they, they brought like a pretty small crew and filled in the gaps. Yeah. In fact, uh, the PW torch wrote at the time when ROH travels to England in August for two events, they're likely to be without current ROH wrestlers under TNA contract as TNA has a pay-per-view scheduled for the weekend ring of honors traveling to England. You know, ROH released a list of talent traveling to England, which didn't include names such as Alex Shelley, Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, and AJ Styles. ROH announced that fans of England would get to experience an authentic ROH event as if it were held in America, but it will be difficult for ROH to duplicate that for the fans of England without the TNA wrestlers ROH is currently using. So we'll, we'll touch on that later. We can decide how authentic we felt it was. Um, let me just see quick. Apparently the tickets for this sold pretty quickly for these two shows um, that they, you know, this wasn't quite a sell for the Olympia, but still 1400 for ring of iron in this era. Very good for them. And then um, now we get to the observer. Dave Meltzer would write 
Because they charged higher than U.S. ticket prices, the Liverpool show was the company's all-time largest gate, and the weekend, with the merchandise sales, was the biggest grossing weekend in company history. Of course, with the cost of flying a crew round trip to the U.K., it was also the company's most expensive weekend. The company expected to break even, and that doesn't that doesn't include the eventual DVD sales. So again, this is one of those classic things. How many times, Matt, on through the years, have we um had covered like the newsletter saying that you know people in ring of iron telling us that if they do 400 or 50 or 500 fans live they break even you know on these shows before the dvd sales and then we find out like later on with the feinstein scandal and years later that basically almost all these shows lost money before dvd sales and some of them probably many of them lost money after the dvd sales because ring of honor lost a bunch of money in general so carrie silken in modern times saying you know you know these shows we did not make money on Dave at the time was being clearly told by someone in Ring of Honor, you know, the rosy picture of, hey, we're breaking even before we even sell a DVD. But um, Dave continues, uh, Gabe Kapolsky called it the most important weekend in company history. He noted that fans came from came from all over Europe for the shows, and he expects that they made new fans that will expand their European merchandise business through the tour. He was also happy because they did the tour with nobody, aside from Austin Aries, who hasn't started back with them yet, who was under contract to TNA. While there are no bad feelings or anything indicating a split between the two companies, it's one of those situations that always can happen when some when using people under contract with someone else. Also, if TNA starts running more house shows, the talent's first priority would be TNA, so he can't be in a position to rely on that talent. Still, unless there's a major breakup, Samoa Joe and Homicide are likely to be a part of ROH for some time to come. AJ Styles, on the other hand, isn't going to be booked at this point for any new dates, which is largely due to his $900 per show asking price. So, Matt, this was back in the day when Dave would just come. He doesn't do this anymore. I don't know why. He would just come out with people's prices. And so there's the price for you. You want to know, like, the economics of Ring of Honor at the time. I guess that's another reason AJ disappears is it was $900 a show for him. Well, I mean, I guess the reason why they did it back then was because he was told it back then. And now he's not, yeah. you know, like that's that's the difference. So uh, one thing I want to ask you, Matt, is – um. Like Gabe mentioned that in, in both these quotes that, oh, we're hoping to build new fans. I think that's kind of backwards. Like I have to imagine anyone that bought tickets to these shows was already a Ring of Honor fan. Like, yeah, maybe a couple people brought a friend along that never had seen the product before. But like the idea that we run these live events in Europe and then we make new fans that way, that's kind of backwards. The idea is you make new fans through the free stuff like television and then you monetize those fans. You make money off of them by the DVDs and the live events. They well, did the, oh. yes, but I do think I was probably made a fan by going to a show, um, that Futurist Now show, and then I bought a DVD right after that solidified it. But I don't know. I mean, because you know, the, the the they ran that show the weekend of ECW One Night Stand because a lot of people were going to be like in town going to wrestling shows and stuff, and that was the show that I went to that when I got hooked. So. You know, I don't know. I mean, this this was different in that it's not like there's some other bigger event that's bringing people in. Um, this is just ROH, and that's the big event, actually. So I'd be curious to know how many people who came to this were, like, first-timers who became hooked after. You're right, it's probably not that many. But is it – how significant a minority is it? I don't know. Yeah. 
And that brings us to our last note before we get to the show. Uh, the Observer, Dave Meltzer, noted the fans at this show were almost exclusively ROH fans. So kind of going to what we were just talking about, as they knew and reacted big to every personality. ROH has weekly TV in the UK on the wrestling channel, which makes a difference. Plus, the UK has its 1,500 or so hardcore fans whenever they bring in the top US indie guys. So I guess that's one thing everyone that's done podcasts I've listened to have touched on and, and you know, and I want just, I, I was kind of shocked rewatching the show, how this is very much a like hardcore ROH crowd. Like you wouldn't know that this was a completely new market. They were running overseas for the first time. They reacted basically quote unquote correctly to everybody. They even brought the toilet paper for Jimmy Ray. Yeah. And, and, super- it's not, and it's not like when WWE runs the UK nowadays and like the, the reactions are just like different. Like there's more singing and stuff like that. Like, like singing type, like chants. Whereas like they reacted like they were just an American crowd. Same, like fuck him up, blah, blah, fuck him up. And you know, Jimmy likes balls and all, all the same stuff that you hear on an, on a US ROH DVD. Yeah. And listen to that Brit wrestling experience podcast episode. They were talking about, you know, which I, you really, I really think it comes through watching the show, like how we wanted to be like good ROH fans. It was a, it was, it was like, you know, we kind of wanted to fit the mold. We wanted to prove like, Hey, you know, we can be like they were, we're big fans of this thing too. And yeah, they, in fact, if you watch the show, like the UK guys, are some of the least over people other than Nigel, some of the least over people on the show. Um, like Robbie Brookside does not get it. I mean, he has his fans in certain section, but not a huge reaction. Um, Spud gets booed. Like they're not against the UK guys, but it's the ROH guys. Like are, they're just way more into all saying all the ROH guys live in an ROH setting. Um, it makes sense. It makes sense. ROH guys are the stars, you know? Yeah, so that's the setup. That's why it was so big. This was, you know, Ring of Honor's first ever shows, official ROH Ran shows outside of the U.S. First double shot in the U.K. Crazy that synced up with our natural schedule synced up with AEW's first show in the U.K. coming up this month. So we open with Nigel McGuinness backstage. Nigel says for one year, he's made the pure title the most important title in Ring of Honor history. And tonight is a night of firsts. The first time ROH goes international, the first time ROH has titles that get unified. Nigel says tonight he'll prove he's the best wrestler in the world. Very simple, short promo to start things. Then we cut to Davey Richards in front of a stairwell. Davey says Jimmy Rave wants one more round with him, even though he's already beaten him multiple times. Aries and Strong then quickly interrupt the promo, asking Davey if he saw anyone in their locker room. They then walk into a locker room, which is just a couple steps away, and or bathroom because there's a sink there. And they find their missing tag team title belts. The, 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 the tag belts that have been missing for the last couple shows are just sitting on their bags with a note that says, these will be ours. Aries says, mine games won't cut it. Whether this was the Briscoes doing or not, it's the Briscoes last shot in the titles tonight. Roddy says that the next, that then the next night, whether they face Team England or Team Noah, it doesn't matter. They're still going to be the ROH World Tag Team t- Champions. And I, what I really like at the end of this promo, Matt, is as they leave, you can hear Roddy softly tell his title belt, I missed you. So Yeah, and, and, but also it was funny because I feel like Davey Richards was giving his most intense, hard-hitting delivery yet to a promo. Like He was really feeling it. And it was just a promo where he immediately got interrupted and made to look like a jobber um, in favor of Aries and Strong. So I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> I, I I also liked that um that this whole mini storyline that happened on the last double shot of uh, someone has stolen Aries and Strong's belts. I love that the whole storyline is 
the belts are stolen from them. They go missing for exactly one weekend, and then when they're back in the UK, they are politely returned to them with a snide note. Like, that is the most <laughs> low-key healing, like, ha, we yeah. stole your belt for a weekend. Yeah, and, and, they, we and they had to carry them across the ocean, like, for, like, yeah. that, they did them a favor, if anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, wow, this is really, like, you could have, you know, held them even until we got back to the US. That would have been really nice, actually. But, um... <laughs> That brings us to the opener for Corner Survival Match. Matt Seidel defeats Colt Cabana, Johnny Storm, and Sput in 9 minutes, 49 seconds, when he pins Sput after he hit a Seidel shooting star press. So before the match starts, Colt Cabana, he gets to be the first person to make an entrance on the show, which is fitting given his prior working experience in the UK, his well-professed love of the UK style. And he gets a huge reaction, probably partly because of that, partly because he's the first guy to come out. He grabs the mic and he says, before anyone else in the match makes their entrances, I'm going to welcome you, Liverpool, to Ring of Honor. Colt says ROH is going to give the crowd a historic two weeks. And then he immediately cracks himself and goes, oh, I mean, I mean two days. And then he Shades, says, shades, now, of, shades of Hulk Hogan saying Silverdome at WrestleMania 30. <laughs> he says, now, we're not only going to – Ring of Honor is not only going to have the U.S. as his home. We're going to have a second home in the United Kingdom, to which I would say, well – they run two more shows in 2007, and that's it. So uh, not quite a second home. But um, Matt, what do you think about this as an opener? Starting us off, you know, Johnny Storm, someone we had saw in the early days of Ring of Honor for just a couple shows, and he's back here to make an appearance. Yeah, Storm, uh, in his early ROH appearance, I don't think really made a hugely great showing for himself. Like, not nothing super memorable, and I don't think this was super memorable either, but... It was nice to see him, and I think he did all right. Um, the main thing that I noticed about this match is just the crowd was just super excited to be a part of this. They were so hot for Cabana. You know, they were they were really into Seidel. You know, like you said, the UK guys, not quite as much. So, you know, Cabana gives them what they want. They do a lot of silliness, opening match silliness, I would say. Um, and then eventually break down into a bunch of dives and whatnots, you know, with um, um, Storm coming off the top rope with Arana. That's the first big move of the match. Then he di- tries to dive onto Colt. Seidel cuts him off. Seidel goes to dive onto Colt, but Spud cuts him off. Spud does, in fact, dive onto Colt. And then Storm comes off with a twisting tope. Seidel hits his own, like, twisting dive. So we get the first, this is awesome chant. But I think you would agree, this was a crowd that was just excited to chant that at anything right like they were just like yeah. we want to chant this is awesome <laughs> we, we will get to later i think one of the most undeserved this is awesome chants in roh history up to this point <laughs> um but you know we get a, we get a few more of those back and forths um and eventually um spud and storm do a sequence where storm hits a half nelson michinoku driver um dropping spud on his head and then storm goes Again, to superplex, to do the superplex on Seidel, but Seidel knocks him off and hits the shooting star press onto Spud to get the win. And I really didn't expect Seidel to get the win. I, I was kind of expecting Colt, because he was going to be in a world title match. I didn't really remember what the finish was. But this was just a pretty basic, fun little opener. You know, very hot crowd always helps. A little bit of comedy, a little bit of high-flying. Gives you what you want for an opener. Nothing much beyond that, I would say. Yeah, this was, I felt like, your standard built-in-a-lab ROH four-way. A little comedy at first, a big dive train, a ton of spots after that, and it all wraps up in a neat bow under 10 minutes. It's pretty fun. if you were. I think, though, if you were a regular viewer of ROH at this time, you'd 
have seen this a million times before, but because this is going to be, I think, a theme at least for my review of the night, because this went in front of a crowd of people who were hungry to see ROH live for the first time, they ate it up, and that made me like it a little bit more. Just that enthusiasm, and in fact, for again another one of the stories for me of this of this um, match of this whole night, again what we talked about earlier was that the two home country guys in this match are the least over. It's like the most over person is Cabana, then Seidel, then Johnny Storm, who's not not over and then spud who for some reason gets booed maybe everyone had overheard spud bragging about his hundred quid shirt earlier i don't know but for some reason they enjoy booing him quite a bit it's it's not Um, it's not so shocking i mean like if you go to a let's say like a a u.s new japan show you know who are going to be the most over people on that show is it going to be like u.s indie guys or is it going to be new japan stars you know it's, it's not it's not like crazy I feel like that's kind of – you know what? I feel like we've kind of evolved to that, and maybe this was the start of it. Like with the internet, I think, helped that a lot, right? Sure. Where you could already be really familiar with people before you had ever seen them. Like you could be like legit fans. Back in the old days where it was like you would bring Japanese guys over somebody in like the 90s, and people would go, who's that? You know, with uh, rare exceptions. But um, – I also like, you know, Colt playing off his Brit wrestling knowledge here. He does the big daddy belly thrust and he gets an easy, easy, easy chant from the crowd. I thought, you know, Spud was fun being the small bullied guy here getting teased by Colt. One crazy spot to me was on the dive train. Spud does this like forward flip dive over the top rope to the floor. And he's light enough that when he makes full contact with Colt, rather than Colt like bumping and dropping to the floor, he just kind of stands still and Spud just kind of bounces off of him. And I thought that's something you can only do with a guy as small as Spud. Um, I thought this was above average, just a quick blast of a uh, dumb fun to get started again. It was more fun because the crowd was so into it. And I guess the other things we should mention, because this is the first match, this is Ring of Honor, as Alan pointed out, in a smaller UK ring. They did not bring their own ring overseas, so it's a it's a smaller ring, has a special new ROH canvas that has like a globe and the US English flags on it. The hard cam, maybe due to the distance, it feels like it's farther away and then zoomed in, is noticeably blurrier than the ringside handheld camera. Yeah, that that was very distracting all night. It was just like, it was out of focus. Like, it was just full-on out of focus. I don't know how they didn't notice that the entire night. (laughs) Yeah, so it was funny to hear Kara on that podcast talk about how, you know, they went to great expense to find, like, a nice lighting rig. But, yeah, the hard cam the whole night is noticeably, like, blurrier than it would be on any other ROH release. And, like we were saying, blurrier than the, than the handheld cam. So it's like that. It's almost like we've talked about other shows when, like, the hard camera isn't color corrected with the uh, – it's happened on a couple shows with the ring handheld cams. So it's like every time they change camera angles, you get, like, this weird, like, whoa, everything looks different, which it's it's not – unwatchable on this show but is a little annoying for sure um after the match we get handshakes a lot of chants from the fans and just as everyone's gone backstage chris hero jumps into the ring drawing immediate booze some toilet paper and a cries of fuck you hero he reminds us that he's one half of the kings of wrestling with claudio castanoli well which I, would is say, I would say not just a reminder i feel like that might have been the very first time he even mentions that on an roh show yeah, I mean, I wonder if commentary ever mentioned it because wasn't there a show where he showed up with the um, the Jakara tag belt maybe around his waist? I'm not sure. Yeah, but I still don't think they talked about it. And I feel like yeah. the announcer on the show, they mentioned they called themselves the Kings of Wrestling. Like that might have been an introduction to that team name on ROH. Yeah, you might be right. And uh, obviously this is um, 
hero's reintroduction to ROH after the CCW feud. He's like the first guy from the CCW feud that, you know, Necro will be back too, but much later, he, you know, hero gets to stick around. He's earned a spot here. So, you know, the crowd's saying, shut the fuck up at him. Hero says, if ROH plans on having a historic event in England, Chris Hero plans on ruining it. This prompts Colt to run back out, attack from the back, attack Hero, who immediately flees back into the fans and the crowd. Colt says, there may be thousands of miles from the, they may be thousands of miles from the U.S., but this is still Ring of Honor. And Hero's kind is not welcome in this building. What does he mean? People from Ohio? <laughs> well, hopefully he just meant people from CZW, but um that would be the least objectionable objectionable thing to discriminate, I guess, for against. But and that brings us to our second match on the show. Davy Richards defeats Jimmy Ray with score to the ring by Prince Nas. So they did go, you know, they did not bring the refs. They didn't bring a bunch, you know, some of the lower card guys like Jimmy Jacobs and Delirious, but they did bring Prince Nana to these shows. Um, so Davy Richards defeats Jimmy Ray via pinfall in 23 minutes, nine seconds after he hit the DR driver before Rave comes out. Prince Nana first appears with a mic to tell the fans that England is just like America. They have no respect for royalty, which I thought was a good line in England. Um, <laughs> he's going to pick up on says, that. That's good. Yeah. He says, tonight the fans will have the privilege of seeing one of his greatest discoveries, the crown jewel, Jimmy Ray. Jimmy enters, and yes, he gets a huge toilet paper shower, even overseas. Again, another one of those little examples of this crowd was really on the ball. They wanted to be an authentic Ring of Honor crowd. But he also gets the crowd chants toilet paper as they throw it at him. So I guess the difference between British fans and American fans is the British fans will tell you what they're throwing at you. They're very polite that way, informative. And something happened, Matt, how many times in 2006 Ring of have we covered something with all the chair-throwing incidents and stuff where someone has been hit by something or the famous broken chandelier? It happened again on this show. It did not make tape, but uh, Dave Meltzer would write in The Observer, when fans threw tons of toilet paper at Jimmy Rave, Prince Nana, and Rave were throwing it back, a role hit a very young girl, and she started crying. Alex Shane was on the scene immediately and gave her about $80 worth of free T-shirts, as well as Ring of Honor DVDs for her brothers, and everyone was happy. I, I don't know how many stories this year have been, someone got hit with something, they got free DVDs, <laughs> and it made things better. So yeah, this was the uh the end of the Jimmy Rave Davy Richards trilogy. This is the blow off match. It's kind of a weird trilogy when you think about because the first match was pretty darn good. I thought it was a nice intro to Ring of Honor for Davy Richards. The rematch I thought was fun but short because the guys had to go home early because again a thrown toilet paper broke a chandelier and they ended up wrestling in broken glass. Um, had to go home early because of that. And now you have this match, the blow off to the feud, where the first third of the match, Matt, is consumed by a section of little children in the balcony doing high pitched chants and the rest of the crowd angrily yelling at them to stop. Um, th- th- this group of little kids, you know, they keep chanting things and at one point, and despite the fact that everyone is, you know, like, eventually the cold crowd starts trying, shut the fuck up at the little, at these little kids in the balcony. And later we get shut those kids up chants and past your bedtime chants. I don't think I've ever heard an entire ROH crowd turn on one section of fans this badly since the poor women that made the apparently unforgivable mistake of cheering for Jeff Hardy in 2003. Yeah, I was going to say, we knew, we knew ROH crowds back then resented women, but did you know they also resented children? Well, now you know. Yeah. I mean, are the kids a little annoying? Yes, but still, I mean, <laughs> we're really going after these kids. So anyway, 
Uh, this match has worked like what it is, which is a bluff to a, you know, a series of matches. It feels bigger without knowing who's responsible for like what in the match. I felt like the first two thirds of this match were really a Jimmy Rave match in that the first five minutes was just the two guys going back and forth on the mat. And then it started to ramp up more. We got an occasional exciting move. And then there's a certain momentum to the match that kind of feels like a Jimmy Rave match to me, where for periods in this match, it's not back and forth, but more a guy hits three moves in a row. Then his opponent hits a move or attempts one only to have it countered. And then the guy that was in control will hit like another two or three moves in a row where there's this certain kind of flow that some of his matches have. And I like that where you feel like someone has momentum and you get these little teases that's going to shift, but then it just gets cut off. And then the final third is when the match really feels bigger, where it's what you see a lot, all the big signature moves the two guys in the ring can do, back and forth, some nice near falls. But to me, it felt bigger because at this point, we rarely ever saw Jimmy Rave kind of let loose. Like he was very restrained by design. And this is him kind of doing the bigger stuff. It also felt that I, helps that I felt like his stuff was really on point in this match. I felt like his running and jumping knees looked about as good as I've ever seen them. He just killed Davey on his Northern Lights bomb, and he even broke out a second rope gonorrhea. And I don't know if I've ever seen him do that before. Dave Prezak on commentary certainly said he didn't think he'd ever seen J- Rave do that before. And speaking of Prasek, I thought he did a really good job on commentary here. He, um, when Rave does the running knee, he's make sure to, he makes sure to point out that, uh, that's what gave Davey Richards a black eye in a previous match. When Davey does the Kawada kicks to Rave, he points out, Hey, that's what, you know, busted Jimmy Rave open in a previous match. And it's just simple detail work like that, that, you know, brings the history, makes things seem more, you know, substantial. And I also really liked in this match that Rave was not the cowardly jerk he can be, but like an angry, bitter jerk. Like he's biting Davey's face. He's spitting on him. He's playing the role for once of a guy who desperately just wants to beat this upstart like he he's so pissed he's not scared for once he's just going after him uh Davey I thought looked good in the standard Davey way where you know he has impressive spots he hit them all well except there was one blown spot of Davey where he has Jimmy up for a running Liger bomb he has to put him down because he doesn't have a good grip on him that gets a you fucked up chant and they, then Davey repeats the spot and he hits it and maybe because he's so scared that he's like I gotta get a good grip this time Rave's ass basically ends the move hanging up his tights but, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I thought this was a very good match. It wasn't quite great, but I thought it built the final minutes into something that felt really big. We even get to see the old suplex your opponent over the top rope and they hold on. So you both tumble to the floor spot that Richards must love. Cause he'll bring that back in much more famous matches he does. And yeah, I would give this like a three and three quarter stars if I had to review it. Um, for me, I feel like I would think it was very good if it was just a little bit shorter. I feel like it's tough to have like a second match on the card just suddenly be like this like 23 to 25 minute epic. It just feels like a lot to me. And I think they, they did start slower than they did in their other matches. And this was definitely the longest. So you're right that it's bigger, you know, just literally it's bigger. But I just felt like it was a little bit too much, especially after all the heated, you know, battle between the, the two. It took them a little bit too long for my liking to heat up the action, I guess. Not that the stuff that they did was bad. You know, I I enjoyed, you know, some of their um, their wrist lock reversal sequences and stuff like that. Um, I liked, you know, when Rave started working. First of all, he did a cross face without doing From Dusk Till Dawn, which I'm not sure if I've seen him do. Usually if he does the Crippler cross face, it's when he does that From Dusk Till Dawn kind of head scissory thing that he does. 
but this he just locked in the crossface. And when when Rave bit Richard's ear, Darrell David was like, "What is he, Mike Tyson?" So you know, all good cultural references. But <laughs> but eventually, you know, they did get the crowd to come alive. I I always do love that suplex to the floor spot. I I, I just think that looks so cool. I, I I find it very impressive whenever anyone ex- executes that as well as they did here. Um, and then you're right, like the the, the final few minutes was was I thought really really good. The uh, the ramping up of intensity. The, the near falls, the, you know, I think Rave was hitting harder than he usually does. You know, Davey obviously always hits hard. Um, and, I, you know, I, I thought that the last few minutes was really exciting. I, I just I just don't know if it really needed to be this long. I think I would just say this was a good match that could have been, in my opinion, very good if you shaved like five to seven minutes off it. Yeah, and I can tell you, I I'm probably a little higher on this match than a lot of people. And I can tell you, your opinions like right on with like a lot of other opinions I see, which is just, and eh, maybe you could have trimmed it a bit. But uh, after the match, also I'll say Prince Nana throws a great tantrum in the ring after the match. Really nice performance from Prince Nana here. So next we join the Briscoes backstage. Jay says third time's the charm. You know they're gonna win in this third match. The tag titles are gonna win it. The first time they were cheated. The second time Strong and Aries got lucky. Jay says he hates England. He hates the people. He hates the way they talk. Mark says the food isn't good. Mark then calls Sandy Fort Delaware the greatest town on the planet and says they'll be coming for Kenta when they get back to the states. Um, I can tell you from all the stories I've heard on all these podcasts. The Briscoes probably had more fun in the UK than this promo would. I've heard stories on other people's podcasts that they they took advantage of that twenty pound uh, all you can drink deal, Matt. Um, among other things, <laughs> it sounds like. Um, and that brings us to BJ Whitmer defeats Claudio Castagnoli via pinfall in nine minutes nine seconds with a bridging cradle. Um, Matt, you know. This it's the third match on the show, man. I, I I do like the framing that they try and give this of this is kind of the epilogue to which I kind of thought the the Necro Butcher B J Whitmer match was, but this is kind of like the epilogue to the epilogue of the B J Whitmers battling against CZW. So what do you think about this match? They should have left the Necro Butcher match as the epilogue. I would say um, this was just I don't know it's completely unmemorable. You know it felt felt like obligatory, like they had to do their CZW crowd ball brawl because that's what the fans in the UK had been watching on. I guess, you know, um, delayed DVDs all this time, you know, if, if Alan was any indication. So they, you know, so they do brawl in the crowd. Um, they throw each other on the fancy chairs. Um, um, BJ hits the uh, elbow suicida. Um, and then, like, the crowd's pretty hot for that. And when they get back in the ring, it's pretty quiet, I would say. Like, not, they're not, a, they're not quite as into it. But <laughs> I think this is probably what you're talking about. They're quiet, but then Whitmer catches Claudia with a sudden exploder, and then they start chanting, this is awesome, which is... Yes, this is the match. Bananas. Like, they, they didn't seem that into it, but all of a sudden, this is awesome. Like, there's a couple minutes into this random crowd brawl. Um, and at this point, you know, it's fine. It's serviceable. You know, Claudio gets a two-count off his spitting faceplant thingy. Whitmer hits a low knee strike to the head. Claudio hits a running European uppercut right into the Ricola bomb for two. Um, you know, uh, Whitmer goes for a power bomb. Casanoli block backdrops him, and Whitmer turns it into a sunset flip and just rolls into this deep cover for the pin. Um, and Prezak says that ties up all the loose ends. Which, um, okay, I guess for me it was just like been there, done that. That's how I felt about this. No, nothing special at all. 
Yeah, I probably like this a little more than you. I thought this was a, a slightly above average crowd brawl. I think this match works best in the context of the show uh, it's on because this is another match like the opener where, like you, you just said, you know, it's, it's, it's the obligatory ROH crowd brawl of this era. But I felt like the first three matches on this show kind of did a good job of giving, I feel like these fans some of that ring of honor undercard vibe where it's like checking the boxes. Like, do you want to see like a standard thrown together kind of fun four way that we always do? You get one. Do you want to see like a pretty good kind of just textbook ROH style match that has a big finish? You know, you get that. Maybe it's not an absolute great match, but it's good. Get that. And then the third match, do you want to see kind of like the generic ROH crowd brawls that we've been having for months lately? Like, we can't bring you the CZW food, but we can bring you this. And I feel like in that context, I thought it was a, a nice little sampler of stuff for, for the crowd. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, you know, it, it's, I did like that they worked it with like a little bit of hatred. It wasn't like Carino homicide level hatred, but they did work it a bit like they really disliked each other, you know. Claudio attacks BJ before the bell. He chokes him with his own ring jacket. Very quickly, they fight in the, into the front row. You know, we see BJ do a big tope, which pushes Claudio into the barricade, which is very close to the ring and really pushes the barricade back. You get some standard but decent crowd brawling stuff. They hit each other with water bottles. They get thrown into chairs, which are, again, the fancy non-folding chair kind so and you know a suplex on the hardwood floor and then they go back in the ring the final two minutes are just them going okay we gave you the crowd brawl let's cram in a bunch of moves and that's where like you point out what i consider to be one of the, the most undeserved this is awesome chance in roh history not that it was terrible but just like this is like a two and three quarter star match and yeah, like, the, again, this is a sign of how generous this crowd was. They were chanting for BJ Whitmer before the, the, the match, which, granted, this is kind of the high point of Whitmer's career this, these few month period. But like, again, this was just a crowd that was very happy to see Ring of Honor. And maybe that gives that a boost if you can get along with the, if you can absorb some of this crowd's enthusiasm, if it becomes contagious to you. Um, Maybe you like it a bit more, but and I'm just I'm just over these kinds of matches, like just so over them at this point. Yeah, on these DVDs, I I, I completely understand. And again, like I I think that's another thing what we've I've really noticed doing through the years with you, Matt, is there are so many things, Matt, or even like having Phil Schneider on the last the last show, it really kind of sent home. Like there are so many matches or kinds of matches where if you just see it once, like every few months or every year. You really will dig something. But if you – Ring of Honor would run a lot in certain types of matches over and over again. If you were, say, doing a podcast where you and your friend have to watch every single one of them, you get a completely different vibe when you've seen like the ninth crowd consecutive show with with this kind of brawl. So I, I completely feel your pain, Matt. Um, <laughs> I'm right there next to you. But just moments after uh, Whitmer enters the uh, – just moments after the match, uh, Chris Hero jumps into the ring after Whitmer leaves the ring. and um, Or not, not after Whitmer leaves the ring. Chris Hero jumps into the ring. He attacks B.J. Whitmer. He and Claudio are about to double team up until Colt Cabana runs in the ring and fights them both off. Colt gets on the mic. He says, he told Hero before he's not welcome in Ring of Honor. But if he's going to be here, why don't they give these people an official sanctioned match? Hero angrily screams like, no, never. Colt then chases after Hero as Hero attempts to leave, throws him back to ringside, tosses him into the ring, and then rings the timekeeper's bell himself, which I guess makes this an official match, which is Colt Cabana defeats Chris Hero via pinfall in 9 minutes, 39 seconds after he hits the Colt 45. 
just felt like kind of a bit of a classic old school structure in that hero very quickly takes control and he really controls most of this match. Like Colt gets a couple key comebacks, including the one at the very end that gives him the win. But it's mostly just kind of hero dominating, which makes sense because Colt had already wrestled once in the, in the night and hero hadn't. So, you know, hero should have the advantage. And also the booking made sense though that Colt should get the win because Colt is very over in England. So it does make sense. He didn't get the win the first match he had. So give him the win here. Really everything about this match kind of made sense in that way where like they had a little bit of hatred like the last match, but not a ton, but still they had a, it was a little more than just a standard match. Um, I thought Hero's really good at emoting as always, being very cocky when he's control, showing ass when he isn't. There's also our first look, I felt like, of the hero we'd be getting on this like kind of 1.5 run of here. I don't know if you can call it his second run, but this new run for him in Ring of Honor where he's doing a bunch of needless flips and tumbles just to kind of show off and annoy people. Multiple senton vari- variations, including his over-the-top one where he does that that big twist at the end. But he also found time to do his big palm-thrusty Tracy Smothers tribute strikes in the corner and also a brutal and great-looking backdrop driver and running boot late, I thought. So he kind of got a little bit of everything from Chris Hero in this match. Uh, Colt didn't really do a ton here. He was mostly selling, but he does do an 80 style Hulk up comeback near the end where he starts to encourage Hero to punch him. And in a rarity for Ring of Honor, Matt, this will not be the only Hulk up we see on the show. We'll see a much better Hulk up later in the show. And I also thought the other th- interesting thing about this match was the crowd reactions Hero got because this was a show again where the crowd is very much acting in line with how they're quote unquote supposed to react to everyone on the show. And here was one of the only exceptions where he gets a bunch of boos, including when he puts um, Colt in the cravat. Although when he puts Colt in the cravat, he gets an immediate pop followed by a few fans chanting same old shit. But then later in the match, you can hear a few fans cheering for hero as most boo. And maybe because hero's another guy that, you know, had a lot of love for the UK style, but it was like one of the only guys on the show where not all the fans, but a few fans were like, Technically, we're not supposed to cheer this guy, but I'm going to cheer him anyway. So overall, I thought this was an above-average match. Again, like a lot of these matches, I enjoyed it more than the last match. Again, nothing special, but I I, I kind of like the he- the Chris Hero character work here. Yeah, it's kind of of a piece with the last match to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would say a little bit better. Um, you know, they definitely were not trying to steal the show, and they could have. Like, these two could have, a, like, a great match. You know, they're like, yeah. it's not like they, they can't. So, but they weren't trying to. This really was Hero introducing now the more comedic version of his character. You know, he did the little, like, walking on his knees thing that he hadn't really done much at this point in ROH. And that always gives me a hit of nostalgia when I see Chris Hero do that. And, you know, and like, like you said, the uh, extraneous flips and stuff like that, you know, and lots of stalling and rolling cravats and Tracy Smothers tributes and... You know, he was just, you know, basically just showing his new character. That's basically what the point of this was. Getting over the character for when, I guess, they'll become more regulars in the company in the following month. Um, and yeah, I would say Colt really didn't do that much, but he did do a Colt 45, um, which he very rarely does at, at this point. And I really enjoy that. So I thought this was fairly basic. They were just kind of doing a fun character house show match. It worked on that level, but not memorable at all. And after the match, Colt blows his nose and hits hits Hero with a real spit, sp- uh, like spray of spit. Like he really soaked 
Chris Hero in bodily fluids. I kind of felt bad. I realized it's wrestling, but it's like, man, that's a that's a that's a lot of mucus. That would be um, on the AEW band moves list now. <laughs> You'd have to ask permission, Matt, if you want to blow your nose on someone. But um we go and join Brian Danielson backstage in the next segment in one of the rattier looking paint peeling brick wall sections of this building they could find. And I guess this is a good time to point out, like Alan touched on, this really is a really good looking building. Like it does kind of have like UK New Yorker vibes. It's got the belt. It looks kind of like old, but in a classy way. But unfortunately you mostly see like the, the, the hard camera is where the nice, unique-looking part of the building is. So mostly you're seeing, like, the most boring, plain-Jane part of the building, where the ring and the ramp is. Like, it's only when you kind of get the 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 handheld cam shots do you see something nice. So the building where they wrestled looks great. The backstage looks terrible. Um, anyway, Danielson says, Nigel McGuinness has done a lot of talking the last couple of months. Tonight he's going to shut him up. Again, just like the Nigel promo so slight it almost might have well it might as well not have been on the show but i get why you felt the need to have them talk before their match but it does make the match seem more important even if it's not yeah. like the promo itself that's doing it you know and next we get doug williams and jody fleisch defeating go shiozaki and suwa in 23 minutes four seconds when williams pinned shiozaki with the chaos theory suplex so the conceit of this match was you're getting team united kingdom versus team noah and the winning team was supposed to uh, challenge for the RH tag titles on the next night because of injuries, which we'll get to on the next show, that gets thrown out. And, you know, Alan did in his interview did a great job of kind of summing up who these wrestlers are. You know, Ring of Honor, long time through the years, listeners or Ring of Honor fans will know Jody Fleisch and Doug Williams. And But, Matt, what do you think about this match? Because I saw this, Scott, when I, when I looked up reviews after I formed my own thoughts, this is a somewhat divisive match, I would say. Yeah, I fall in the category of I really liked it. I um, I, I thought first of all, I always love watching Doug Williams do mat work. I, any listener of the show knows that it just always gets me where I live. Like it just, he, I, I just think he's great at it and could watch him all day. I think Jody Fleisch here was you know was uh, you know a little bit bigger than he was when he was in ROH before. He um, a little bit more hard hitting. There was only one real botch that I noticed, and they just cut away to the blurry hard cam so you couldn't really see the botch but i think anybody with a keen eye for wrestling would know what happened and i really like sua here you know he had never been in roh before and he got over his personality really well and i think just the the mix of characters really worked it started slow but you know and sua was bullying fleisch and also bullying the referee and blowing snot and you know uh fleisch early hit a springboard shooting star press um, you know, to pop the crowd, which, uh, which I enjoyed, but then, and you know, there's not a ton of story in the early part, but as it goes on, you know, you get that, you know, Sue is, you know, just being a total dick. Um, Shiyazaki's a, a hard hitting young guy. Uh, the other two are trying to keep pace with them and hitting hard. And I just think that the stiffness and the intensity, I think it just really works. Um, you know, at one point, um, Sue is working over Fleisch. He hits a, sp- a spine buster into this really deep Boston Crab. And then Go knocks Doug Williams off the apron with a boot. And after Sue goes up to the top rope, Fleisch nips up, kicks Sue, and then does this, that cool 
Matt Seidel style leap up to the top rope Rana, which is, I think, a good way to break a heat segment. And then pretty good hot tag to Doug Williams at that point, who immediately goes up to the top, hits a flying European uppercut, and then a big suplex and a diving headbutt. So I thought he did a really fun, different kind of hot tag. And then they just go into big moves. Um, um, Fleisch kicks uh, Shizaki from the apron, and then Williams hits a really great high-angle bridging German suplex on Shizaki. Um, gets a two count. Fleisch hits a moonsault on Shiozaki, and Doug immediately hits a flying knee off the top on on him. But Sua breaks up that pin. Um, um, Doug blocks a, a superplex, and eventually they both end up on the top rope. And Shiozaki hits a super fisherman suplex. So just a lot of really cool big moves. Sue is headbutting Williams, and and he hits an inverted atomic drop and a big running drop kick, which sends Williams into the corner. Um, this is where um, Fleisch hits his botch because Sua headbutts Williams, hits it. Uh, oh yeah, so he so he sends Doug into the corner, and Jody looks to be going for like a springboard DDT on That's Sua. Seven twenty DVD yeah. DDT he does, so like yeah. flips into a DVD. Yeah, but then they cut away because he does not hit it, and they just call it a crossbody. So that's like the one, and then they don't really give the crowd a chance to chant "You fucked up" because Shiozaki immediately hits Fleisch with a dragon suplex. Uh, Williams lariats him. All four guys are down, so the crowd's really into it now. They're not really focused on that botch. Um, and then uh, Sue throws Fleisch to the outside, and uh, Williams hits Ducks. Sue hits Shiozaki. Doug rolls up Shiozaki for a two count. Then Doug hits two running knees on Shiozaki, goes back up top. Uh, Shiozaki rolls out of the way. Williams goes for a chaos theory. Shiozaki blocks, and Shiozaki kicks but um but doug eventually gets him in position again hits the chaos theory for the win um and i just i just thought the big moves other than that one really hit i thought that the wrestlers all you know were stiff enough that they kept it really entertaining it was long but i thought it held my attention more in the early part than the richards and um and uh and rave match and i don't know for like for a guest stars match i thought this this was more over than I think people are giving it credit for, and I think that it uh, it filled out its spot well on the card. I, I would describe this match as very good. So this is a match where my opinion of how good the match was, what kind of match it even was, and the quality of the performances of the different wrestlers kept changing as like the match regressed, and I kept watching it. So because you got four very different wrestlers here, right? Like. Doug Williams is your big, bulky, technical heavyweight. Fleisch is your big, flippy spot junior. Sue is your kind of classic personality-filled shitbag heel who came up through Dragon Gate and was in Noah at this point. And Goshiyazaki is your big, young, head-droppy, heavyweight prospect doing a lot of hard-hitting and head-drop suplexes. And the teams don't really feel cohesive. Like, yes... Shiozaki helps go at a couple points, do some heel stuff that heel spots Sua wants to do. But Sua's really the only guy trying to be a heel here or really a character. On the last show, I talked about, I think, um, how there's a bunch of times watching ROH four ways where it feels like the people involved decide they'd rather work it like a tag match. This is a tag match that felt like it's more like a random four way. Like it, it feels like four dramatically different. The match feels dramatically different depending on who's in the ring rather than feeling like two teams to me. It often just feels like four guys taking turns doing stuff. There's one flight Jody Fleisch face in peril sequence and one go in Suba distracting the ref double team spot. But other than that, this really just feels like four guys wrestling. 
Um, early on, I thought Fleisch was really going to be the standout. He was really pumped up and engaging the crowd a lot. And while not everything he did early looked perfect, he was doing some really nice things like that shooting star press to the floor. And he was just taking flips and last second rotations off of standard bumps. Like it, just the way where you can tell a guy's just feeling it and he's trying to put the extra mile in on everything. But then as the match went on, I felt like he lost a little bit of pep and he really started to see a bunch of sloppiness from him, like that springboard 720 DDT. And, um, that they tried to save with the hard cam cut. And then meanwhile, go and Shizaki and Doug Williams didn't do a ton for me early. I thought they were kind of basic compared to Jody's early energy and the, and his big spots and Sua doing the healing. But as the match went on and, and they got to the end stretch, which really felt like a mini match just for them. I felt they became one of the highlights of the match where, you know, they were just really throwing bombs, hitting, throwing, like it was just, they were going for it. And, William, Doug Williams in particular, he's a big guy that likes to throw in a flying move here and there. I can't recall a match where he ever took to the top rope more than this match. Like, I think he did three or four flying moves, and then he got caught or countered doing two two or three more that he were, was attempting. Like, he does flying European uppercuts. He does a flying headbutt from the second rope. He does, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I like Williams, but I will say his flying is where he can kind of straddle a line where even on just stuff like his big jumping knees, because he's such a big bulky dude, there are times when, when he leaves his feet, he gets really slow motion in the air. And sometimes things can look kind of weak or pretty bad as a result. But I thought in this match, he was on the right side of that line more often than not. Again, I thought Suwa was fun as a heel. And so again, this match in that sense, you know, like some nuts and bolts kind of like cohesion, stuff like that. Few a couple of botches. I can point to flaws, but and I can point. I can see reviews online. Of people, I think, like when I was looking at the Death Valley Driver review, Rob Naylor and Phil Schneider did of this. They really did not like this match of memory serves. Um, but I thought I'm like I'm with you, Matt. I thought this was a very good match. I, I thought even I thought the a bunch there was a bunch of just fun stuff and a big effort, particularly near the end from um, Williams and. Uh, go and I think just the stuff the big dumb stuff overwhelmed the flaws in this match you know you got some flying you got Sua being a dick you got big suplexes you got hard hits you got a ton of action and to me this was probably the most fun I had had up to this point in the card like I it was right there with the Davey Richards Jimmy Rave match I, I just felt like it was dumb fun and it was kind of shooting for it was it was more ambitious in what they were attempting than a lot of the other matches so far on the card. Where other than Rave and Richards, every other match on the card felt kind of like, you know, slighter. You know, like these ten minute or less, you know, decent, but we're not really trying to shoot the for the moon here kind of matches. So um, Dave Meltzer was kind of on our side, or at least not Dave Meltzer, but uh, the crowd report he got was on our side because Dave wrote in the Observer, crowd went nuts for the finish, and I was told this was a four-star match. So, I, again, I've seen people listening to this at home. You watch this match. I, I'm sure there will be some divisiveness about this match, but, um, yeah, we enjoyed this. So after the match, Sua takes out Williams and Fleisch with his kendo stick that he brought to the ring, and then he turns on his partner, Go Shizaki, as well. He hits them all with the kendo stick. All three guys quickly recover. They quickly take Sua out, and they raise arms in the ring as Sua slinks away, walks to the back. So, yeah, again, this this was a match, you know, Shizaki and uh, Sua are only on this card, I think. You know, there's the Noah partnership, but I think they were already in the UK for a bunch of days before this doing stuff. So, again, Ring of Honor really 
try and take advantage of all the people that were just in the area for bookings to begin with because, you know, trying to save money and because a big chunk of the roster is at the TNA Hard Justice pay-per-view that's this weekend. Incredible show, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we cut to BJ Whitmer backstage. He says it's finally over. He has finally slayed the demons that have haunted him for the last seven or eight months. He finally beat the Necro Butcher and not just beat him, but beat him in his type of match. And then he ran him out of this company. And tonight he gave Claudio a receipt for hitting him when he had a crown of barbed wire on his head. And he says, now it's time to get back to business, get a title back around my waist. So again, like you, Matt, I agree that, you know, the Claudio Whitmer match was nothing particularly special, but I do appreciate that they tried to make at least, you know, it's, it's not working, but they tried at least with this promo to make it feel like this is the real end of a chapter. Yeah. yeah. And, they, they, always, like, they always play, they always pay good attention to detail. You can't fault them for that yeah. at all. But like you said, was the real end, probably the Whitmer necro barbed wire match. Yes. But Hey, they tried to give this match some kind of reason for existing. Um, we get an ad for the ROH straight shooting series of shoot interviews. Sadly, we never get that Gabe getting asked bad questions by the UK fans. I, I if, if, if there's someone, Tony Khan, if you're listening, if this is in the ring of honor, um, vault somewhere, shoot us an email through the years. I don't, don't want to see it. It's too awkward for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of awkward I can get behind, but, um, we're talking about awkward, Matt. That's a great seek to our, our match after intermission. That would be the FWA British heavyweight title match. Robbie Brookside successfully defends his title when he defeats Chad Collier, Collier via pinfall in 10 minutes, six seconds after he hits an iconoclasm. So, you know, the FWA was kind of a promotion again that, you know, Alex Shane was affili- affiliated with. They were a UK, a now defunct UK promotion. That's who they worked with on the Frontiers of Honor kind of crossover show in 2003, who they'd be working with for the one they're doing a few days after this show. So, hey, you get a FWA British heavyweight title match. So the big thing about this match is at the start of the match, Gabe jumps on commentary because, again, this was Dave Prezak and MSL um, doing the the commentary. But Gabe jumps on a couple points. Gabe makes a point to jump on commentary to explain why Chad Collier's even on the show. He says, ROH released Collier from the roster after his first blood match with a steal a little while back. Actually, I'll point out as an ROH nerd that technically, according to Cage Match, uh, Collier had a match the next night. It was a dark match against Claudio at Better Than Our Best. But still, whatever, Gabe. Uh, he, Gabe goes on to say, he says, Collier's only on this card because this match is for the FWA British heavyweight title. And so the FWA sanctioned it and that Collier's their number one contender to that title. So he's basically saying FWA wanted this. Gabe then goes on to say that while he respects Collier as a wrestler and thinks he's a great wrestler, he was dropped from the RH roster because, and I quote, he just never got over, unquote. Gabe then proceeds to, um, just she starts going on about like in Ring of Honor. If you don't you if you don't rise from the mid card, eventually you get dropped from the roster. And, and but then he goes, well, it's good to see him back in the ring because he is an exceptional wrestler. And I just thought, depending on your view, you can either see what Gabe did there as frank honesty honesty to explain why Collier's back for one random weekend, a real dick move, or both. Both <laughs> and. <laughs> even even Prazak and Jared David were like, uh, okay, like, like they they yeah, were Jared like, that David's was like, that's cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I I do feel like it's a little unfair to say Collier never got over. I just feel like he never really got a great shot. He was booked very sporadically, you know, and I don't know whose fault that was. And apart from the Ace Steel feud, which was the last thing he did in the company of any significance, he never really had any kind of program. And this got me thinking, like. 
Joe Lanz on the Voices of Wrestling podcast, he sometimes talks about how like a lot of people have one or two wrestlers that are kind of bland, solid wrestlers that are just the proverbial good hands that they just like more than everyone else. They're just kind of, that's my guy. And I think he used that to explain like Tony Khan clearly sees more in say a Scorpio sky than a lot of people. That's kind of his guy. And Joe has said like my kind of guy version of that was like, he likes Tony niece more than maybe the average person. I don't know if I like Collier quite as much as Tony Khan likes Scorpio Sky or Joe Lanza likes Tony Nese, but I kind of feel that way about R.H. Chad Collier. Like, I feel like well, he's well, a the really question, soft- The question is, Trevor, if you were a booker, would you be booking and pushing him? That's the question. I would push him as a mid-card act. Like, I, I feel like he's a solid worker. I feel like he had this crazy wild man charisma that R.H. never really tapped into. Uh, he never really had the big show-stealing matches, but he was never really put in a position to have them. I know a lot of fans at the time viewed him versus Rocky Romero as one of the early great hidden gems and one of the great openers. I think on the rewatch, we both agreed it's either aged a little badly or it was overhyped, but it was still good. Also, he had good but, matches with Matt Stryker. Yeah. I, I just feel like there are a bunch of people that have worked in Ring of Honor. I feel like that Gabe could have given that burial to that would have been more thing than Chad Collier. Like he's, you know, yeah, he's not a superstar, but I think he is like ROH version of the good hand, you know. And anyway, this weekend would end up being the last time Collier wrestled in Ring of Honor in the Gabe era. He would come back for a handful of shows in 2010 in his Metal Master gimmick, but this is for the Gabe era. Apparently, if, you know, I don't know if FWA really told Gabe they had to have him on the show or if it was as simple as, again, Collier was another guy that was already in the UK, so it's like, hey, we don't have to pay for transportation. Let's get him on the show, and then Gabe decided, you know what? I'm just going to kind of fucking bury this guy. All that said, Matt, with my hype of Chad Collier – this was the worst match on the show. <laughs> and uh, despite Brookside being a hometown wrestler with a real wrestler's wrestler's rep, you know, like William Regal and Brian Danielson can't say enough good things about how influential or how much they love this guy. This was the least over match on the show, I would also say. Not just the worst match, but like the match, the crowd, you know, they, they're, Brookside has some fans, but it's like pretty quiet. And other than some of those little kids were big Robbie Brookside matches, I think fans, the observer, the live report to the observer, Dave Meltzer would write. They also had the British wrestler, Robbie Brookside defend the FWA title, pinning Chad Collier, a former ROH wrestler who was touring Europe this summer. Crowd wasn't into this match, even though Brookside is from Liverpool. So like, yeah, I, I felt like he, he gets, he's, they're not into him as much when he's the hometown hero and the champion of the local promotion. But, um, there's nothing too wrong with this match. It's just very basic. A few minutes of chain wrestling, some basic action. They have Collier keep going for the cloverleaf. He eventually gets it. Brookside survives, and then he very quickly just comes back and hits his own finisher for the win. I think if you watch Brookside, to be generous, you can see why his contemporaries like Regal and why the next-gen guys like Danielson rave about him because he does little subtle things really right, like ring positioning. He looks like a guy that would be very easy to have a match with, but it was also just kind of a doll match. And it didn't seem like they were like Brookside in particular, were really treating this like a big time match, but average at best, I would say for this. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with the wrestling, um, but there was no excitement at all. They wouldn't, they didn't really build to anything. You know, my favorite parts of the match were um, like just Chad being wacky like telling fans that he was going to kill them like you know just like really blunt 
crowd work. There was another spot where <laughs> Collier got a one count and he yelled at the ref like that was two. And I'm just like, what's the difference? <laughs> like you didn't win either way. What, what, like what does that matter? Like it's like you get points for an extra count. Like at one point at Rob, he at Rob, he yells, "Come on, you hippie!" And I love it when yeah, exactly. Like, like like again, these are the kind of things where I felt like he doesn't deserve the burial because oh, yeah, we've of seen course. in the early couple of years of Ring of Honor there were so many generic technical like guys none of them had this charisma like that like of all the guys to single out it's chad collier yeah chad was like kind of like weird and random but like that's kind of a good thing when you need yeah. to stand out from other people like so yeah i agree with you i i, I think they could have done more with him again i'm not saying like it was like the blunder of the century not to or anything yeah but, exactly but they could have but yeah this match I would say, you know, based on because what Alan was saying before, like, oh, you know, the the fans were just not into like UK guys like Ryan Brookside. But like, I don't know. They didn't give the crowd much to be excited about here. They didn't try like not saying they were lazy or anything, but like they were just like, we're not like this was not something where they were like, yeah, let's go out there and steal the show. Like not at all. (laughs) Like they were like, let's do a match and I'm going to win. And they were like, okay, And that was it. And I'm sure most of them never thought of it again. So. That's sort of how I will treat this too. It's not something to think about. It's just not much of a match. Like the UK wrestling scene, I mean, obviously people would know it way better than us, but it was in such an interesting position because, like, the way Alan was talking, you know, there's that group of fans that were only interested in, like, the nostalgia of the world of sports stuff. And then you got, like, this young generation I've got from listening to podcasts and listening to the live re- reactions to this show of, like, fans that were kind of like, they either weren't interested in their local scene or they kind of viewed it as second rate and they were more excited for guys like the Ring of Honor guys or later the TNA guys. And then – but yet – so it's kind of like the FWA guys and Robbie Brookside, they're kind of like trapped in the middle where they're the current – they're not the cool current thing, but they're not like the nostalgic old era quite you know big daddy kind of thing. But yet in just a few years – the UK scene will become like the hottest indie scene in the world, I think, for a, for a little time with you know, like the heyday of progress and stuff like that. So it's crazy how quickly things change and how this was kind of a, a weird time where, yeah, when you watch the show, it feels like ROH is way hotter than anything that the UK indie scene could offer, which is sad because there were, you know, some good workers there. But um, that brings us to the semi-main event. The, and one of the two real drawing cards of this show, the ROH World T- Tag Team title match, Austin Aries and Roderick Strong successfully defend the titles when they defeat the Briscoes of Jay and Mark. Briscoe, obviously, <laughs> in 23 minutes, 58 seconds, when Aries pinned Jay after he hit the 450 splash. So, yeah, this was just like the Davey Richards, um, Jimmy Ray match the blow off of a feud where they'd already wrestled two times and the one team had already won the prior two matches and they win this one too. This was also built as the Briscoes last chance to at the tag tiles as long as Aries is strong with champs. And uh, yeah, their the, the first match this year at Matt, I think we agreed was um, surprisingly disappointing. I, I thought their second match was a drastic improvement. What'd you think? You know, this is this is the one that's remembered best. What'd you think about this one? Well, I've been hyping this match up to you a lot, and you kind of yeah. said that you didn't really remember it too much. Um, but I was worried when I was when I watched it that like it wasn't going to hold up. And I don't know. I think it I think it held up really fucking well. I think this match is to me to this point in time in 2006 easily the best tag team match in ROH history. Um, definitely the best tag team title match. Um, it's just it's two established teams doing everything they could do. It's absolutely nonstop. 
everybody is showing a ton of energy. The Briscoes are hitting hard as they as hard as they ever do. Um, so is Strong. Aries has a lot of energy too, and up to the point where he, I guess, breaks his rib in this match. He's working so hard. Um, I do. It did bring up a point because there was a spot where Jay dropped gum and put it back in his mouth, and everybody made a big deal out of that. And it does. Why do wrestlers chew gum while they wrestle? It feels like it's distracting uh, to do athletic stuff while you're chewing gum. I don't know. I feel like I, I'd be afraid that I'd accidentally swallow it. Yeah, I, I I do know back. You know, like sometimes when I need to think, like like when I'm really busy doing something intensive, sometimes chewing gum does help me think. But yeah, I'd be constantly afraid that I was going to choke. And not just the, does Jay drop the gum once and pick it back up. He does it twice. And like again, like uh, maybe Jay is a big believer in the five second rule. But oh my god, like uh, I'd be scared of touching anything that touched a wrestling canvas. Yes, I, I would. I would definitely agree with that. Um, but yeah, it's like, as Alan talked about before, I think at the time there was criticism from some more old school people that this didn't follow a traditional tag formula. And I've complained about that. Just like no, like in ROH tag matches, you know, not a lot of flow, a lot of back and forth, but they did do a lot of back and forth. But I think the story built and they did eventually have a heat segment uh, on Aries with the Briscoes and every single thing they did was, was awesome. Um, um, some of the spots I liked, like there was one point where Roderick does this cool sequence where he has a full Nelson with the legs on Mark, and then he rolls into a camel clutch. Like I thought that was really cool. Like you just don't see that too often. Just like little things like that before they start getting to the big near falls. And then once they finally do get to the big near falls, um, it just—I mean, I—I'm I, I'm trying to look for the part where I, where I really want to start doing the play-by-play because it just becomes crazy so like Aries eventually like one point he goes to ta- when they're beating on him near the end he goes to tag strong Mark leaps off his back to knock strong off the apron and Aries comes back by doing his shin breaker back suplex on Mark throwing him into Jay and then he hot tags strong and strong's a house of fire uh, chops and Zagiri fuck you back body drop where he just screams that while he's back dropping Jay um, back uh, beautiful drop kick he fall away slams Mark over the top rope onto Jay, who was on the floor. Aries hits a double heat-seeking missile clothesline onto both Briscoes. Um, Strong gets a two-count with the Gibson driver. Then we get a double-team backbreaker, but Jay trips Strong, and Mark drops Aries on his head with a German suplex. Briscoes hit that splash mountain neckbreaker on Strong for two. Then Strong goes for a powerbomb, but Mark runs him, and Jay follows up with a big boot to the face. Um... We're at the point where like there's just so many reversals that like I was having a hard time keeping track. Um, Strong baits Mark into the corner and throws him to the outside, and Aries follows Jay into the corner with a big drop kick, and then uh, Aries and Strong do the the missile drop kick power bomb combo, get a two count off that. Mark hits a tope suicida onto both Strong and Aries, um, and that's when um, Praise that goes. This is state of the art tag team wrestling. Um, Briscoes hit the spike J driller on Strong. Aries breaks up. The pin with a dramatic punt to Jay's head. Mark goes for the cutthroat driver on the stage, but Aries escapes, goes for a brain buster. Mark escapes that and DDTs Aries to a huge reaction. Then he runs from the apron, uh, you know, I mean, from the stage and gets into the ring, hits a springboard like backwards jumping doomsday device, uh, and Strong kicks out. Um, they go for another springboard doomsday device on Aries, but Aries ducks. 
Then Strong hits the sick kick, and Ares does the poison Rana on Mark, and I think that's where he breaks his rib, right? Um, yeah. And then Strong hits the half Nelson, half Nelson backbreaker, powerbomb on Jay. Ares hits him with the 450 for the clean pin. I was out of breath just watching that, never mind recapping it. Um, you know, that's sort of like near fall, near fall, near fall, big move, big move. That's very common in modern tag team matches, right? It was not so common in U.S. tag team matches. Like, you could tell what they took from Dragon Gate here, and it really was state-of-the-art, because they, they, they took that Dragon Gate fast-paced stuff, but they brought in some more of that American-style storytelling. And I I just think, like, this is a real example that you didn't see all the time in this era of these guys just did everything. They did everything they could think of. They they let it all hang out. They emptied the tank, and the crowd was going crazy, and... It was just such an impressive display of craft. Like, they executed everything well. Does it have the deepest story in tag team wrestling history? No. And I guess for, by the, on that level, I could see why somebody doesn't like it, you know? Maybe there's not as, enough selling for some people. I could see that, too. Um, but I, I just thought the execution was so good, and this was just something so different, even for ROH at the time, that I think it, it hit a really high level. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic match. So uh, I probably liked it less than you, but I liked it quite a bit. So I, I was looking at my notes for their previous match, which I liked quite a bit too. And I wrote I, – I, in my notes for that match, I wrote, I think that this match would have been better in front of a hotter – it would have been even better in front of a hotter crowd. And it's like, well, not only is this match better even with the same crowd, like I got my wish because obviously this crowd is way better than the crowd they had their second match against. And this is another match like the Richards-Rave um, one, but to the – a millionth more degree that really felt like the last match in a program, the way you want it to feel like everyone in this match, it feels like they're hitting a little harder than they normally do. Like there's a bit more stiffness. There's a bit more urgency to everything they do. Everyone's just on point a little bit more. It's hard to describe, but everyone, you can just tell they're just, you know, you can tell this is a big match for them and they're working it like that extra, that thing we thought was missing in their first match of the trilogy. It's like, there by 300% here. And, um, and they, they do also give you that little bit extra, those couple big spots at the end that you, that, you know, you wouldn't see in their regular matches. But on top of that, they do, like you were saying, basically everything these, t- these two teams can do, they run through it all. This is the match where they're like, we're not saving anything. We're doing every, we're running through it all. Um, and so as a result, a lot of this is kind of what you'd expect from these two teams. It's kind of that relentless pace back and forth. They're just reeling off everything in their normal arsenals. But where I think um, these guys excel is, again, that little bit extra of that physicality. There's a ton of chops in this match, and the Briscoes in particular look like they're just really laying it in on some of their offense. Like, a lot of times spot fists are thrilling, but they feel kind of weightless, especially in modern wrestling. You know, this is a match where it's a spot fest, but you still feel like they're beating each other up. It still feels like they're hurting each other. And, you know, that's kind of the point of pro wrestling, and some would argue. So body of the match is very good, I felt like. It's consistently really good, but I did feel it's, it's in the realm of what regular RH viewers have seen, like the best versions of these guys, but what you've seen. But it's a match to me that, like, lives or dies on their final minutes. Like, if the final minutes really are special, the whole match is going to be special. 
if they nail it, it's going to raise a level. If they miss it, it's going to drop a level. And I felt like they nailed it here. They give you those couple extra memorable spots, like the Mark DDT Aries on the ramp, the Roddy Fallaway slamming Mark over the top rope onto Jay, who's standing on the floor. They give you that one extra big kick out that you wouldn't normally see, where because we at this point we didn't normally see a kick out on the Spike Jay Driller, and so you know the fact that you get that. And you, you know, you get the, the kick out of the springboard doomsday device. Like they, I, but at the same time, I felt like they hit a sweet spot where, which is a sweet spot that I think is hard to hit where they peaked the match at the right time. Yeah, I, felt I was, like was going to ju- say that. I missed that point, but like that's true. Like they, they did not overdo it with the near falls. They had just enough and they were just at the right time. Yeah, like, because it would have been really easy, like, in a match like this where you have such high expectation, like, it's the blow-off, it's the third match, it's the semi-main event, a big show, like, if they don't do some really big stuff, you're going to feel like, uh, it doesn't quite live up to the moment, even if it's a good match, but then it would have been really easy to go the other way and just go crazy overkill, which we'll see in so many Ring of Honor matches in the future, where it's like, it's great, and then they do five more minutes, and, you know, the proverbial reaction so many fans would have after so many of these future Ring of Honor matches would be like, that was great, but it might have been even better if they went home a little early. This match doesn't have that problem. I feel like it does the perfect amount. You know, it's not overkill. It's not underkill. It's just kill, Matt. And um, I would probably go like four and a half stars. I thought this was absolutely great. So again, I feel like you're going even like higher. I, I will say, I, I think this is a match. It does. I think you made a great point. This was state of the art at the time. And as a result, I feel like this match some people that weren't around at the time or can't put themselves in the 2006 mindset, I think you'll still enjoy this match, but I do feel like it's a match that plays even better at the time when you realize that people, even in Ring of Honor, you weren't seeing a lot of tag matches like this. Like, this was breaking through, and now this kind of pace and this amount of action is more of the norm, although that the physicality is gone. You know, it's it, there's a lot fewer tags that have this kind of physicality in the spot fest. But I'll also say, when I was looking up all the reviews and stuff, there were a bunch of people at the time, not, not, I wouldn't say the majority, but there was more than a couple people I saw that came away thinking this match was more fun to them than the main event, which I think is a little crazy, but I can also kind of understand. It depends what you're looking for, right? Well, if, like, if, it's, if it's just all this. about, if it's all about action, then this match did have a lot of action, you know? Yeah. And then we get to the injury. So yeah, Aries, we'll go to the observer. Dave would write the observer. Um, Austin Aries suffered two broken ribs during the match to go along with his blown ACL that he'd been working on all year. Crowd loved the match, and it was a four and a quarter star match from our reports. At some point, I've got to think they're going to they're getting the belts onto the Briscoes. Dave, you're going to be waiting a while. Um, but then this was interesting. So um, Dave then did a follow up in another observer. He wrote. Aries actually suffered bruised ribs and not broken ribs in the match against the Briscoes and was back wrestling over the weekend. He offered to wrestle on the August 13th show, which would be the show the night after this show, but would have been limited to mostly selling. Sapolsky felt why slow down the healing process when he could change the card up to work around it. Now, Matt, the funny thing is I was looking at like cage match researching the show. Aries like ends up working a bunch of mat, at least one or two matches like later in the week in the UK. So like it's the, it's the funny thing where. Nigel and Aries both get hurt on the show and don't work the next ROH show, but within the week they're working other R- I mean UK shows. So I wonder how Gabe. I mean, look, I mean wrestlers can do what they want, especially when you're independent. But it's funny where like 
you know, Gabe apparently was having one of his classic Gabe tantrums about doing all this. It's like, well, I'll let these guys heal. And then days later, they're both working. So, you know, that's that's the world of wrestling. But, um, no, you know, it could just be one of those things where it's like I don't have to give as much on these other shows as I would have to in ROH. So I can do this, but I can't do ROH. It could just be something as simple as that. Yeah, and that, that's definitely a good point because there's definitely been wrestlers that have said like, look, I would feel okay working in this state for a low-level indie show, but with a Ring of Honor, I feel like I'm going to get killed if I do 50%. So yeah, that, that's that's actually a really good point. I also love that spot in the match where um, Ares is crawling to make a hot tag and Mark just runs on and then launches himself off Ares' back to attack Strong on the apron and knock him off the apron. Like just stuff like that. Like those were the little extras that you don't normally see. I just thought that stuff was great. So, um, after that, we see Aries is bleeding from his nose and clutching his ribs. And he's talking a little bit with the ref. So he's probably telling the ref like, Hey, I'm, I'm pretty fucked right now. And then the Briscoes actually shake their hands. So even though the, the Briscoes are going to keep being heels kind of in this feud with homicide, they do go out of their way to give you that kind of respectful, like you've earned it handshake end to this match. We then get a video package that previews the main event, starting with Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson winning their respective titles, and it goes through their reigns as they use clips from their past promos as voiceover. And then finally, we get into highlights of their prior matches against each other. No one's going to confuse this video package with like a good WWE highlight package, but I would say by early ROH standards, this was one of the better highlight packages I felt like they had ever done. Yeah, I would say it's, def- um, it's definitely among the better ones. Definitely. Yeah. And that brings us to their match. That brings us to the main event match. I did the most research on this is, uh, this is the big one. This is the ROH world title, ROH pure title unification match. There must be a winner after this match. The titles become unified. Brian Danielson unifies the world in pure titles when he beats Nigel McGinnis by ref stoppage in 26 minutes, 24 seconds with the repeated elbows to the head. Now, before the match, Danielson comes out first, and he's introduced by Bobby Cruz in the pre-match introductions. Being, inter- um, being, you know, Brian tells him to announce him as even bigger than the Beatles, which again, funny because this is Liverpool, so he's really doing the classic Brian Danielson needle. Um, with Todd Sinclair, Bob not at the show. Bobby has to give the pre-match explanation of the pure rules, and while the crowd does not, and the crowd does not heckle him, which I felt like this proves they're not an authentic ROH crowd. As much as they try <laughs> to be authentic, you don't heckle the rules, the pure rules. You're not authentic. Well, it's, but, that, um, it's that they're heckling Todd Sinclair specifically. Yeah. In fact, they pop big for the special added stipulation that tonight, if there's a double pin or double count, the match will be restarted because they're really emphasizing, like, look, you know, we've done the kind of cutesy finishes. We're Basically guaranteeing you're going to see a real winner here. Um, the match even gets a special graphic where the R- words ROH world title and ROH pure title collide into it and you get an audible explosion, which I feel like they only do like for the very biggest matches that they give you like the audible explosion effect on the match graphics. And then we see the words unification match. Again, not a grand scheme, big in the grand scheme of things, but something ROH did rarely for matches they thought were really big. So the match, um, Matt, you know, feel free to interrupt because I'm, I got a bunch of things to say, but I should try and find spots for you to talk. Be, but um, this is I, I will, matches. I will let you go unless I, I, I feel like I have something I really need to get in there. I'm, I will wait for you to finish and then give my thoughts. This is a match that's really special to me in a lot of ways. This is another one of those matches that I had circled when you asked me, "Hey, you want to do a Ring of Honor podcast?" I always bring up the handful of matches as we've gone and done the podcast where I was like, this is the ones I thought to, man, if we get to this one, what are we going to do for this one? And 
This match has a lot of significance for the company. It's very fondly remembered. It's a match I loved. It's a match I remember as one of my favorite Ring of Honor matches ever. And because of that, before I watched it this last week for this show, I had not rewatched this match in over half a decade because that's how long we've been doing this show. And I always kept them in the back of my head. I want to save my next watch of this for through the years. But because of that, I was terrified, Matt, because I feel like that kind of gives me an unfair expectation for this match in 2023 because it's now competing with my years of vague memories of all the times I watched it a decade ago and loved it. And sometimes I think we've discovered on this show that like your memories are, can be a big influence. How many times on, on through the years have we watched the match and go, Oh, because I remember this being great. It's a little disappointing or because I remember this being not that good. I was pleasantly surprised. Like, if anything through the years it's not just a podcast about ring of honor it's about like the effects of nostalgia when two guys hitting middle age like relive something that they really loved 15 years ago and like how do your memory stack up when you rewatch all this shit so i was terrified to say it for the podcast and i was like is this match going to hold up to my memories and the answer is it kind of doesn't and i also don't think it doesn't matter and i'll explain why so I think a lot of nerdy wrestling fans, especially ones like you and I, Matt, or maybe mostly me, that are forcing themselves to sit down and vaguely analytically break down and review matches for, say, a wrestling podcast or articles. We focus on every part of the match. Like, we tick off boxes, at least I do almost in my head, like, you know, this match was great, but it was a little long. The selling here wasn't that good, so I'll dock a little bit. Like, we're, we're kind of, you know, it's very cold analytical in some ways. But the reality is, in wrestling – one great moment or one special sequence or one great finishing run of a match. If it's really special, if it connects with you, it kind of, the rest of the match kind of doesn't fucking matter. Like I always use the example, Hulk Hogan and Andre, the giant WrestleMania three. That's a terrible, terrible match. And like people will go, Oh, Dave Meltzer gave it like minus four stars in the observer. Yeah. Cause the match fucking sucks. But the point is it doesn't matter. Cause all that mattered to those fans was that Hulk Hogan slammed Andre the Giant and beat him. And if they got those moments, those special moments at the giant, you know, crowd at WrestleMania 3, the rest of the match does not matter. And this match, let's let's get it out of the way, it's way better than Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. By any, It's great by any definition, even without the special moments I'm going to get to. But is the body of the match quite as good as my memory of it? No. I can nitpick things and I will nitpick a few things, but the, the best parts of this match, the important parts, the final minutes, the things that make this match special are just as good as they ever were. And I, and I think when I sat down and rewatched this and thought about it, I was like, nothing else matters then. The, the thing that made this match special is just as special. Um, so when I go through some quibbles, real, keep that in mind that I realize that I'm saying this is a really great match. And if I'm just picking things apart, it's because it's a podcast and we have to talk about selling and hopefully it's interesting. It, it's more interesting than just me saying, oh, this match is great, but don't get lost. I think this match is great. So the first couple of Daniels and Nigel matches I thought were like about who's the best technical wrestler and who's craftier with their tricks, you know, doing these kind of fiendish tricks against each other. This one has a little of that, but really the story of this match is more just these two guys deciding, let's just see who's tougher then, you know, screw, screw the technical stuff. Let's just kick each other's ass. Even the opening minutes, which is your normal for these two series of grappling exchanges, most of the exchanges end with some kind of significant strike this time. Like Danielson might end it with a drop kick or one, 
one of them might slap the other one in the face really hard, or at one point one of them kicks the other in the back really hard. And early on, you can just see these two are laying it on a level harder than they have before against each other. Even something that's like a European uppercut from Danielson, it's one of the stiffer European uppercuts I've seen in quite some time. And all of that is fun, but my first cool would be there's a moment in those early minutes where Danielson really zeroes in on Nigel's arm for a little while, and as soon as Nigel gets control back, he's using the arm, and he never really sells it again. Now, Danielson doesn't work on his arm very long, and because of that, I think it's pretty forgivable. It's not a big deal, but it was something where like he really focuses on it for a couple minutes in a big way, and they just immediately are like, okay, move on to the next thing. And then there's a really interesting moment in the middle of the match. There's a really interesting choice they make where all of a sudden, right in the middle of the match, Danielson does a superplex, which, you know, that's a big spot, but it's a spot he he can and does do in the middle of matches. But then he immediately goes back to the, up to the top rope, hits the flying headbutt, gets a near fall, and immediately after the near fall, he goes for the cat mutilation. And that's a pretty big one, two, three of big moves right in the row, especially at that point in the match where they had been more a little more low-key. And from that point on, this match immediately ramps into the, to the top gear, and it feels like they skipped over a couple gears along the way. And the rest of the match feels different than most Danielson matches, where I feel like most Brian Danielson matches of this era, they feel they progress very organically and smoothly, and it kind of feels like Brian's figuring out like what direction he wants to take the match in as it's happening. And this match, from this middle point on, it feels more like it, what it is, which is a huge blow-off match, but also a match where they're doing a bunch of things they probably had thought of before and just big bombs, and it's kind of like it's a bigger in some ways dumber match for the rest of the way, more exciting in that also. And if in some ways it's, that's better for, it feels like a more special blow off match, but I will be lying if I didn't say that the older grumpier Trevor game also didn't like, didn't kind of miss. There's a bit of a charm to the first match. These two guys had this year where it feels like it's more story based and more, a more smooth progression. And they're kind of building things from scratch where this match is more of the the big fun again like over the top blow off where they're paying everything off but you know I, I i love both but and then there's the special moment so i have an anecdote about being a fan during the time of this match where this is another one of those matches where i will remind younger listeners that during this time period in wrestling there wasn't a robust social media there wasn't live streaming there wasn't you know live phone camera videos of things happening that were as they were happening so for big roh shows you asked to god you hope to god actually that someone um was at the show and would phone someone after the show or if you were lucky during intermission they would phone someone that was at home and they would tell them the results and the, that person would post the results to the RH message board, which geeks like me were feverishly refreshing. And so I was doing it of the day of the show. I was like, I, because at this point, Brian Danielson was my favorite wrestler in the world. RH was my favorite promotion in the world. And even though looking back now, Matt, I can see it's obvious Danielson wasn't going to lose because they were setting up the Danielson Kenta match. They were setting up Danielson homicide for the end of the year. I was convinced that Danielson was losing the title in this match. And I really, I really liked Nigel, but Danielson was my favorite and I loved his rank and I didn't never wanted it to end. And, um, I just thought because it's in the UK, because I just thought it'd be more dramatic if the pure champion's the guy that wins both titles, because, you know, because of all of that, because Brian already had a long reign, I just felt like, Oh, Nigel's going to win this. So I kept refreshing the message board. I was terrified 
that Nigel was going to win. And I was overjoyed when, I, when, when, when Brian won, I probably did something like goofy, like audible woohoo in my home, just the, the saddest thing. And, I, and then of course, because it was 2006, I had to wait a few weeks to get the DVD. And when I, and when I watched it and I watched this match, I get to a point, there's a point in this match. It's the famous point where um, Nigel is bloody from getting his head bashed into a ring post, which we'll talk about extensively later. And he survived a big Danielson dive into the crowd. And he just survived this teased countout loss, you know, where, you know, he got in at the last second. And then he gets a big pop when he gets back in the ring and beats out the countout. And then at that point, you see something that you rarely ever see in Ring of Honor, I guess, in, other than that Colca Cabana match earlier, where you basically see an old-fashioned 80s Hulk cup where blood is just dripping off of Nigel's face, and he starts looking to every side of the crowd, and he starts just almost pumping his hands and screaming, come on, over and over again. And at that point, this crowd that was already red hot and had just popped back for that count tease, they just start to roar. And at that point, Brian Danielson does something he rarely does, which is he starts cowering and looking scared. And then at that moment, watching this match on DVD for the uh, for the first time, I remember distinctly thinking at that moment, oh, my God, what have I done? Like it was my fault. Like I, I thought in that moment, Nigel McGuinness should have won this match. And I, and I just felt like it was almost like it was my fault for wishing. And think about that. I'm like a huge Brian Danielson fan. This was my dream that he went, won this. And watching this match for the first time, this moment, it was such a special moment. I just felt like, no, this was this was Nigel's time. And. You get this crazy ending, they butt heads, you know, more big moments. And it's just it, everything from the moment that Nigel gets his head smashed into that ring post. This, that's the special moment to me where it doesn't matter. The, re- the rest of the match could have been bad. And this would have been a special match. It just crackles with an energy. And once he does that Hulk up, it is, I still, that is one of my favorite moments in Ring of Honor history. And after rewatching this match, again, this felt like a match Nigel should have won. And I realized, that doesn't make that doesn't really work because you had the other big matches for Danielson and knowing that you had already done this story on you had basically put it in motion where homicide had to win the world title by the end of the year. I don't think you would have won Nigel to have to lose the title like less than four months from this point. But at the same time, I, I always wonder if Nigel had won this title and if we had lived in the era where rather than everyone having to wait for the DVD, it was just on t- live TV or pay-per-view do you make him like a big star? And this match did make him a bigger star, no, even the way it was put out. But I feel like if he wins and this was seen live to like a large audience, this is felt like one of those matches that would have made a guy in one night. And instead, I wonder if they kind of missed the boat on Nigel getting the title when they do to him. And it's also even just, just the fact that, the whole way they work the match kind of feels like they're setting up for Nigel to win because Nigel kind of, he, he's not overwhelmed in this match, but he is, he kind of works as the underdog. Like they do a great job of having night. A story of this match is Danielson does all of Nigel's tricks to Nigel and Nigel survives them. Like, Danielson's the guy like that is trying to get Nigel to lose by count out twice during this match, including doing the old, I, I bury him under a table and run back in the ring, but Nigel beats it out, you know, um, Brian Danielson gets Nigel to use up his rope breaks before he uses his rope breaks. And the only guy that really takes advantage of the rope breaks of the ropes being legal is Danielson. Like he puts um, Nigel in a, uh, um, across a chicken wing where they're sitting on the turnbuckles, you know, Nigel gets the ropes in, in the calumulation. It doesn't help. And 
even at the end where it's Nigel that's all bloody. It, it, it's Nigel that's getting this horrendous abuse. Like all of it really felt like it was tailor made for this guy's overcoming everything. And then at the very end, it's just Danielson wins. And it almost kind of reminded me of Daniel, I mean, Samoa Joe and CM Punk, the third match, where it really felt in some ways like this was Punk's night. And at the end of the day, this awesome dominant champion. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, but part of me is like, man, I, now I could talk about the ring post. That's a whole other conversation. I could talk about other spots. I will just say, I think this match is great. I, before I rewatched it, I would have said this is one of my favorite, if not my favorite ring of honor match of all time on rewatch. I don't know if I would put in the whole as, as an entire match. I don't know if I would put that on the level of the second and third Joe punk matches or even Carino homicide from bitter friends, stiffer enemies. But I will say if we were just ranking moments or final few minutes of a match or segments of a match, everything from basically the ring post head spot and Hulk up to the end of this match, that might be my favorite moment in ring of our history still. And at that point, like does, isn't that more important than what I felt about like minor quibbles with like something that happened in the first five minutes of the match, you know? And so that's my very long winded thoughts. It's, this was a match that was very important to me. It was weird revisiting it. We can get to a whole bunch of other stuff surrounding this match, but Matt, what'd you think about the match? Um, all right, so it's interesting that you said that about Nigel winning because honestly, even to this day, even before you said that, it never was something that I really considered, like that Nigel would win this match. I don't think he had been built up enough. I think there were they were there was just too much stuff waiting for Danielson. That Kenta match, man, as someone who was going to that Glory by Honor show, I would have been pissed if uh, <laughs> if they booked, took that Kenta versus Danielson match off the books. Danielson versus Homicide, like you said. Um, and I do think that, you know, this feud did make Nigel into a main eventer. Like, I, I don't think he needed to win. That said, I also think that after the Marafuji match that he has in September, they cool him off a lot in the booking. And I think that was a mistake. They drop him down the card a lot for the Jimmy Ray feud. And then early in the, in the first quarter of 2007, he doesn't really do very much. And, you know, he finally gets a match for the title with Morishima that he loses in April. And then he cools down again. He gets, you know, he gets some big matches. And then he really, they really start to heat him up, like, around the summertime when he finally gets to the point where he wins the title. So I don't necessarily think that him winning this match would have changed that much if yeah. what, what I think they, they did, what the mistake they made was cooling him off when they did. But we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, you know, obviously... It felt like this was the right time for Nigel to win in the moment because he was in his hometown and, you know, or not his hometown, but his home country. And that yeah. could happen in, you know, to a million guys. Um, this match was, it, it was definitely not built the way Punk and, and Joe was with that, like, where they, they put that, that series over as so legendary, right? Like, this was the third match in th- of three, and they will have one more before the end of 2006, actually, very, very soon, like in two shows. Um, but it just it just wasn't treated with that status. It felt like it was if you just watched this match in a vacuum because of where it took place. Um, now, as far as the match itself, um, yeah, I thought that you're right in that it sort of lost some of the subtlety of some of, some of Danielson's matches. It kind of just felt like it like hit you over the head with like action and intensity 
and and all that stuff and just went right into the big moves. But I think that works. Like I think that it made it one of the most maybe the most memorable match of Danielson's title reign so far. Actually I would say absolutely the most memorable match of Danielson's title reign so far. And one of probably two matches during the title reign that maybe three that people would say was the best match of the title reign. You know, maybe one of those Roderick Strong matches, um, this one, and then the Kenta match. And I'll be very curious to see how the Kenta match holds up, because that's the other one. But, like, those are the three defining matches of his reign. Um, this this one right here, to many people, is number one. Would you still say it's number one for you, the defining match of his title reign? See, I, I think it's more defined than the Strong match, but here's the thing. I would have said that before I rewatched this, but now that I rewatched this... I, when we get to the Kenta match in a few shows, I might end up putting the Kenta one. I'll have to, you know, you'll you'll have to ask me again after the Kenta match because I I feel like the fields I would have said definitely, but now I feel like the fields a bit more open for me. Yeah, well, for me it's always been the Kenta match, but that's just because I was there, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to compare that, but you know, this match does have a level of emotion that that one doesn't have, um, and a level of action that I think none of Danielson's matches have had. This is feels much more like a not like it's not like it's a WWE main event because they do things WWE would never have done, but in some ways kind of the way it's structured. They get to the big stuff early, they hit their big moves and then they go outside and they do some big crazy thing that said that indicates okay, this match has now gone to the next level because we did a crazy outside spot. And instead of putting someone through the announcer table, in this case it's you know, smashing someone's head into the ring post four times. And, you know, I mean, I know you said you want to wait to talk about that spot. I no, feel, we can we can talk about it now. I mean, yeah, yeah I feel so, like that, that's like, I mean, that's the defining spot of this match, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, ironically, well, not ironically, but shockingly, <laughs> not the first time Nigel has done this in ROH, which we have discovered through the years. Um, but it's funny to me because I think for a long time, People would have said that spot really dates this match in that, like, you know, they were just very cavalier about head, unprotected headshots and concussing themselves doing during this era. And then what happened with Benoit happened, and the wrestling industry in general became a lot more careful about chair shots to the head, headshots in general. I feel like over the past six or seven years, the wrestling industry has sort of kind of backed off its um, caution levels and are doing more and more insane things and i'm going to especially say you know in aew and some indies um that you know maybe would have been like okay let's not do this for a while anymore and that now they're sort of back i don't know if they're quite all the way with the unprotected headshots the way they were back in the mid aughts but you know i would say this match doesn't stand out as being so crazy the way it might have like 10 years ago um it's still, I think, bad to do that, and obviously it messed up Nigel, and I think he would tell you that, and there's regrets about it. Um, but, boy, it sure does add a moment. I uh, I don't know how to feel about it anymore. I, I think yeah, so, they, Sorry, go ahead. I'll, I was just going to say, um, yeah, so let's be clear. Like, this, the spot, like, like you mentioned, we discovered that, you know, I believe it was the battle lines are drawn. I think it was like Nigel's third or fourth match in Ring of Honor against Cody Hawk. They had done this spot, and he had never done it in Ring of Honor before or or until this. But it's he has they're both standing at different points outside the ring, 
on different sides of a ring post. Brian grabs either arm of, of Nigel, pull and pulls it. So basically Nigel is getting his head round, head first, hard into the, the ring post. I would say four times, and on the fourth time, he hits his head so hard on the ring post legitimately, you literally, if you really slow it down, see the skin, like, burst on his whole forehead and just start bleeding. And um, you don't see this, you know, during the match, but from what I've heard from, like, doing my research, he apparently had a, that night, like, three large goose eggs on his head from the match and had to be taken to a hospital and had a concussion from the match. So, like, he... He and he does kind of look out of it for the rest of the match, even though he's still like in, he's intense. But there's just something about him that like he looks a little altered to me. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Did you notice that, or did, was that just me? Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I noticed that for sure. Yeah. But yeah, that that's the spot where um yeah where every so there was huge debate, and I and I think Matt, you made a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Where. I'm not going to say no one – there was definitely people saying, oh, this was a bridge too far or, ooh, that made me uncomfortable when it happened. But I think you bring up the Benoit thing as a great point because remember, for people that aren't remembering the timeline, the Benoit murders and suicide happened one year after this. And so this was a very notable match involving head trauma that had happened only one year earlier, and I feel like – Whatever negative reaction this match got from some people at the time, it, was, it got like four times as much in the wake of the Ben Waffling because everyone well, turned around and was like, oh, here's a recent example. Well, well, there's, there's, like- there's another element to this. Um, um, Danielson and, and Nigel had a match just a couple of weeks before the Benoit murders, and it didn't air until the pay-per-view a few months later. And in that match, they really doubled down on the headbutt stuff. Where they just bombed yeah. heads a bunch of times, and that really brought this entire issue, you know, to the forefront, because you know it, it was taped before, it aired after, and you know it, it brought back the conversation about this match and that match, and you know it, this was going to become a thing that was going to be a major part of their matches, and it did. They leaned into this headbutt storyline in subsequent matches, even after that, and in their final match in ROH. They do a bunch of headbutt spots in 2009. And we're going to see like headbutts, concussions become a motif in the Danielson versus Nigel feud. It's really strange. And this is really when it all begins. Yeah. And um, I know, and we might get to because I know sometimes you have the quote. And if you, when we get to the Danielson book, if you don't have it, I I have it. But like Danielson says he regrets this spot i i couldn't find the quote but i have vague memories that gaze Apolsky at years after the fact says he regrets this spot um i did some research i i i didn't watch from end to end but i i didn't rewatch from end to end but i did kind of skim through both of nigel mcginnis's documentaries the the last of mcginnis one he made himself about his final days of his career and then the one wwe did with him and on both of those he singles out this match like in both those ones. He just kind of generally talks about his ring of our career in each of those documentaries. He gets a few minutes, but in both ones, this is the match he like singles out as something special. Like he goes out of his way to just talk about this one. He and Danielson and the only other match I believe that Nigel like that talks about in anywhere close to 
the same kind of reverence or importance to him as this match is the matches he had with Kurt Angle early on in, T- in his TNA run because of the importance those potentially could have had for him and how that made Kurt Angle a big fan of him. But for him, like, I think you asked him honestly, he would probably say this was like one of the biggest, most important matches of his career after the fact, even after everything was all said and done. Um, yeah. And, and do you want me to read the Danielson quote? Yeah, we might as well get to the get to the Danielson quote now, and then we can talk a bit more about that. But yeah, get to the Dan- if, if you have it. Yeah, I do. Um, it says, talking about the Nigel series, he goes, Our contest at Unified was a unification match to merge the promotion's top two titles, the ROH World Championship and the Pure Championship, which, created in 2004, was essentially the same as WWE's Intercontinental title. I guess so. <laughs> um <laughs> In Ring of Honor, the pure title and its defenses had unique rules. The limited rope breaks had no punches to the face. Actually, yeah, like limited rope breaks and no punches to the face. Yeah. Plus, the championship could change hands on countouts or disqualifications. Nigel was the pure champion for almost a full year and had even beaten me, the ROH world champion, by countout in Cleveland, Ohio, using the distinct rules to his advantage. Nigel was traditionally a bad guy, but that night in Liverpool, he was incredibly popular with his fellow Englishmen. The crowd was passionately behind Nigel, cheering him on the entire match and booing me every chance they got. At one point during the match, I grabbed Nigel by both arms and pulled him into the ring post head first, causing him to bleed. It was Nigel's idea, but he wasn't sure if he could get the post to bust him open. I suggested blading, but he wanted to do it the hard way. We decided I would pull him in three times. If he didn't bleed, we'd stop. After three attempts, he wasn't bleeding, but he yelled at me, One more time! This time, he slammed his head really hard into the post, and the blood started pouring like crazy. We continued on, the blood adding more and more drama, until I finally did the same thing to him that I did to Roderick. I put him in a crucifix and elbowed him until he he was knocked out. The match was great and sold a ton of DVDs, but looking back, the ends didn't justify the means. Due to the shot to the ring post, Nigel had an enormous hematoma on his forehead, a huge knot of blood that slowly drained down to his eye. He ended up with serious concussion problems because of things like that, although that ring post spot may have been the most visual example. We've all done a lot of stupid things in wrestling. Some end up being worth it, others not. Even though it was a great match, it wasn't worth what Nigel ended up paying for it. So, um, so Danielson definitely comes down on the side that this was not worth doing. Um, I, I guess you think that Nigel sort of feels otherwise. Um, well, I don't know, honestly. I mean, he doesn't really, at least the things I find, he didn't really go into that, but you know, obviously his career ended because of, I mean, you know, he, he, he had a lot of injuries, but his career ended more because of things like he had a hepatitis scare, you know, where he had it for, for a, a version of a type of hepatitis for a while. And, you know, there was yeah. a, uh, Danielson's a physical- the one whose career ended almost because of his concussions. I will say in doing research for this, I found an interview that a uh, Dave Bixens fan did with Nigel, I guess years and years ago. And he, it, Dave, it was a uh, Bix was referencing it on a pro wrestling only.com uh, forum post. Uh, fortunately, he posted a link to the, um, to the uh, interview, but this was like a decade old post. So it's the, the file was down, but he said in this interview with Nigel, one thing that struck him was Nigel told him, like, I don't remember a lot of my ring of honor career. 
which I was like, like, like that kind of stuff made me feel worse about this, you know, like, um, so I, I guess to kind of talk about, since this was such a big story of this match, other than the quality and the importance, I, I think one thing to talk about this match is I kind of don't know how to feel about the head stuff because there's a few ways you can think about it. So, I mean, let's start off by saying it's a profoundly stupid and reckless spot. Like it's a spot where, you know, you're probably getting hurt. Um, it, 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 I don't know how badly hurt Nigel was on this night. I know someone, people said he was taken to the hospital, but he was back in time later to have like a beer at the post show party. It was bad enough clearly that he did not work the next night, but then did work days later. It might have contributed to apparently, according to that interview with Dave Vixen's band, to maybe him not remembering large parts of this time period of his life. But, um, um, I do know, so yeah, all of that. I'm just looking at my notes here. Uh, you know, the Gabe thing, all that, but at the, and I also, you know, the Benoit stuff. Yeah. Again, maybe that makes us, cause I do feel like we all knew concussions and head trauma were bad before Benoit, but I feel like a lot of times we kind of assumed, Oh, you get a lot of concussions, then maybe you'll get dementia when you turn 60 instead of turn 80. And I think once the Benoit stuff happened, it kind of educated us more to the idea of like, no, like you can have very real, debilitating mental problems. I'm not saying the concussions were the only thing that contributed to Benoit doing what he did, but I mean, we've learned more in recent years. We're more aware now that head trauma and concussions can have immediate impacts in all sorts of different ways. So I know there are people who do not like this match, right? Just like they, they, they don't like this match. They go, the art of wrestling is to make it look like you're hurting each other, not actively doing things that you know will probably hurt yourself and that there's no art to that. And it was brutal and horrific. And I don't like the match because of that, and you know what, if you feel that way, I'm not going to argue against, I think that's a very valid viewpoint to have. I also feel like there's an argument that, human beings have the right to do what they want to do with their bodies as long as they're not hurting somebody else. If you're willing to take the risks, you can do it. I I, I think that's a valid argument. Although sometimes I worry that like people who do shit like this, they don't really know like the, the impact it's going to have in their lives or they feel invincible when they're young or they're just so full of adrenaline, their judgments off. And I know some people that just are like, look, I it's, it's entertainment for me. You know what I can personally say is I'm conflicted about the spot. I'm in some ways uncomfortable, especially like knowing the fallout was the stuff we just talked about. But at the same time, I can't lie to myself and not say that for me, this spot doesn't make the match better. It does. The match, the, the match kicks into that special moment at that moment. It, 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 there's more energy. It just feels different. It's, it's the first thing I think of whenever I think about this match. It, it, it like, I, I can't deny that. Like, but, but, for, could they, what, but could they have gotten that effect? by working that spot and blading. I think maybe, but I'm not sure. I, I think, I think maybe they could have, they're, they're smart wrestlers. Maybe they could have gotten to that spot. I mean, to that, that, that emotion and that moment, a different way, but that's the way they got to it, you know? And the funny thing is, as the match progresses, you know, a minute later, they're doing those million headbutts. And as you mentioned, they do the headbutt spots over and over in, in future matches. And, and honestly, those might be, as depending on how stiff some of those headbutts were, that might be as damaging as the ring post thing. But yet we just remember the ring post thing because it's so visual and unique because it rarely is – have we ever seen a spot like that, you know? But I think the one thing I want to uh, – the one last thing I wanted to talk about with the ring post thing was – and we've talked about it a lot, but – 
Um, I think one thing that really came through to me rewatching this and doing the whole through the years with you, Matt, was, you know, there's thought process that you should never do spots like this. And I think there's a good, I can see the logic to that. And I might agree with that. I don't know. I'm conflicted. There's also logic that you only save these spots for special shows, but maybe if you really want to do it, you do it for the biggest shows. And I will say, if you believe that line of thinking, I feel like through the years has kind of validated that because we saw this spot in that Cody Hawk match at Battle Lines of Drawn. No one remembers that spot happened because it was a meaningless match on the undercard of a little remembered show. We saw them do the headbutt spot, you know, on the previous Danielson McGinnis match. And people don't really remember that match, you know. And, and I think this match is kind of a testament to the, uh, it is the proof that like, don't waste spots like this. You know, if you do, you can do this exact, you can do if you're going to sacrifice your health, don't do it on a match that people aren't going to remember because they're not going to remember it just for the spot. And I, I think that's if, if there's any lesson to take from this that I can be confident in, it's if you're going to do something like this, make sure it's already a big match. Make sure it's the cherry on top of a match that's already going to be a nice Sunday. Don't think it's going to turn a whole match into a Sunday on its own because people won't rem- – it'll be like the battle lines are dropped. People won't remember it if it's just a throwaway match and you do something fucking nuts that's going to hurt yourself. So that would be the thing I feel passionately about from this, I would say. Yeah, I feel like that's uncontroversial. Yeah, if you're going to do it at all, make it count. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all of that. Um, Yeah, so let's just get to the notes. Oh, and the last thing I want to say about the match, I really like the ref's work uh, on the finish. So the finish is Danielson gets, you know, Nigel in the the repeated elbows to the head. And I thought those were some of Danielson's best looking of those elbows ever because sometimes they look a little soft because understandably he's trying not to hurt somebody. And the way the ref just jumps on Danielson and he screams like, he screams at Danielson like, it's over, Brian, or it's over, Dragon, it's over. And he has to kind of calm Danielson down and dra- Danielson is just huffing and puffing and it just comes off like Danielson is so in a frenzy because he just it's the only thing that'll stop Nigel and it was just such a dramatic way to end the match I uh I really loved the uh the drama the way they got to the end of the match just the acting from both the ref and Danielson on that was great and I also want to add um Phil Schneider, obviously, he was on the last show. I felt like a lot of times, you know, I loved Phil Schneider's reviews growing up, but he was not afraid to go out on a limb and have reviews I disagree with. I thought his review of this match had a lot of points that I've already touched on, but I I think he nailed my thoughts on this match and his review at the time. He wrote, this match reminded me a lot of Austin Aries versus Samoa Joe when Joe dropped the title in the sense that the body of the match was nothing exceptional. So, okay, I think that's a little hard, but anyway, but it built to an absolutely brilliant finish. The stuff pre the floor felt a little perfunctory. They went through the rope breaks and it felt a little like killing time. It was fine, but I think the early the early work was better in their first match. Everything after they go to the floor is amazing. Nigel is certifiable for letting his head get mauled like that, but it led to an amazing visual and incredible heat for the finish. Rob, who had, Rob Naylor had also done a review of this with him, was spot on with the description of that lariat. It was such a great variation of a signature spot and was one of the better near falls in the company history. Danielson is such a killer and the Gary Goodrich elbows have never looked this good. I really think after this match that Nigel could carry the promotion as champ and, and that is something I wouldn't have thought before this. So yeah, I think that's dead on about all, all those points there. Um, yeah, you can't say that Nigel losing didn't help him get over more because he absolutely no. was a much bigger star after this match than he was before it. 
So yeah, after the match, the crowd chants asshole. And they were pretty positive to Danielson before and during the match, except in the key moments where he was healing them. But they were chanting asshole at the finish. Someone, like I said earlier, throws a bottle and hits Danielson in the head with it. Um, now we go to the, the observer notes. Dave wrote, Dave reviewed this match. This was one of the rare ROH matches where Dave actually made out of his way to review this match way after the fact. He wrote, when the Liverpool DVD comes out, which should be any week now, if you are voting for match of the year this year, you have to somehow get a tape of that bout. I'm not saying it's a winner, but it's a match you have to see. To me, it's the second best ROH match I've seen this year. The six-man tag from late March with the Dragon Gate guys was number one. McGinnis stepped it up, and it may have been the best Danielson performance I've seen. Keep in mind, I've heard the Kenta match from New York is even better. I wonder if you heard that from one Matt Feuerstein. Anyway, um, it was so psychologically <laughs> awesome, but also insane at the end. What made the match was also the worst thing. McGinnis was basically was pulled and intentionally smashed his head hard against the post four times in order to open himself up hard way. It was sick because I can't recall anyone ever cracking their head open on the post as hard. When I, can, I, can, got- I, can, I can, but it was not Joe McGinnis. <laughs> exactly. Dave exposing his, his lack of knowledge of 2003 ROHB shows, or maybe 2004. I'm doesn't, not doesn't sure. have an in-depth knowledge of Cody Hawk matches. <laughs> when McGinnis got back in the ring all bloody, the place went nuts and had the aura of one of those 90s Budokan Hall main events. The guys then started butting heads like rams, and they were doing it hard enough to open McGinnis up worse. Danielson got catamulation, and McGinnis teased he would tap. Since he was out of rope breaks, he escaped, but then Danielson hit him with 34 elbows to the head on the ground before McGinnis acted as though he was knocked out. And I love that Dave – that's such a Dave Meltzer thing. He literally counted 34 elbows. And – um. And the ref dived in to stop the, it like a UFC match. I'd go four and three quarter stars on it, and it's really a must see. Inside the ring, Danielson plays the part of a working world champion better than anyone. Gabe Sapolsky believes the McGinnis versus Danielson match from Liverpool, after watching it back on tape, was the company's best match this year. And it's not like there isn't heavy competition. Um, Dave would go on. This ends the pure title, which Gabe Sapolsky booked along the lines of the FTW title that Paul Heyman did for a year in ECW, always with the idea it was a short-term gimmick. Basically, the title was a way to get heat on count finishes, and he figured that had run its course. So yeah, this is also the end of the pure title in the Gabe era. And in fact, for the rest of the Gabe era, it's we're back to two titles. I mean, occasionally they'll bring in the FIP heavyweight title and have that, but really, in terms of ROH titles, this is the end of a sig- of a secondary title but, but, until the TV title, which comes after Gabe. But does that line make sense to you that the pure title existed to get heat on countout finishes? I don't think that was really a thing until Nigel. And Ring of Honor regular matches don't have countouts. So, like, right. if that was the goal, like, they're not going to be able to capitalize on it anymore because pure – other than pure matches, they don't have countouts. But it, it's interesting in the sense of – I feel like, you know, Gabe's gone on record that – he doesn't really like the idea of a mid-card title in wrestling. Like he doesn't like the idea of a title, a singles title below the world title isn't as important. But I think he does – he has shown he likes the idea of the the two competing world titles. Like like the FDW title kind of was where it was Taz like, you know, this is the most important title because I have it. And – or RVD with the TV title was kind of like that in ECW. And you could tell like right from the start of the pure title, he was always doing – trying to set up like – a feud between the pure champion and the world champion, like the AJ Styles thing. He immediately, when AJ became the first pure champion, he was set up, setting it up with like tension between him and Joe, the world champion. But obviously AJ immediately gets pulled during the Feinstein scandal. Then when Joe becomes pure champion, it felt like he was kind of starting to tease that, but then they kind of just 
drop that. And I feel like this is the only time they actually kind of lived up to Gabe's vision and it came to fruition. So maybe that's why it ended. Maybe Gabe was like, I finally got to do the thing I've always wanted to do with the pure title, which is have the pure champ feud with the world champ. And now that I've done that, I can get rid of it. How do you feel about that um, philosophy, though? Because like I, I grew up you know, with 80s and 90s WWF where like the Intercontinental title was absolutely a mid-card title. You know, it'd be like sometimes like the second match on a pay-per-view. So that just seems normal to me. Like that there's a world title and there's a secondary singles title that's lower status. But, you know, some guys on the rise will fight for it. And it's interesting to see people that kind of came up in a different mode have a different mindset about that. Like that title shouldn't be considered lower than other titles. How do you feel about that? I, I feel like... In a, I mean, I grew up on the same wrestling you did, like WWF. I mean, we're based almost the same age. Like we, I grew up like Intercontinental title. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Of, I feel like if you have a big roster, I'm a fan of one mid card title. Like I'm not yes, necessarily a yes. fan of like the US and the TV title or the Intercontinental and the European. I'm a fan of that one mid card title, which is kind of like the title back. I think for both of us, probably like the peak of our fandom as kids was probably when the Intercontinental title was kind of like this title is going on the guy. That's earmarked to be the next big thing. Like we're Bret putting Hart, this on Bret the Hart, Shawn Michaels, yeah, yeah, Ultimate Warrior, Bret Hart, or yeah, exactly. And so I feel like titles do have. I guess the thing I would I would ask you though is like, did Ring of Honor have a big enough roster to support a mid card title like that? Because I feel like Ring of Honor was always by its nature they were always trying to keep like. 20 like 10 different guys all kind of at the main event level so that they could you know depending on who was available like with a company like that that couldn't even really do the ranking system consistently consistently like is a mid-card title tenable there in a way in the way it is when you have like a big wwf size regular full-time roster probably not yeah but i mean the pure title was an interesting um experiment i i i think it was worth it just for what it did for nigel i think nigel was the one guy with the cheating that really came up with with a a fun twist and it i think it helped him and it made the the title important but i do think that after him the thing he did that made the title interesting and special if you couldn't just repeat that with the next champion i think that would seem just too retready at that point where do you take the title after nigel so i do feel like in a way the tile did kind of have run its course at this point. So um, after the match, you can see a front row fan, like throw the water ball, hit Danielson in the head. Danielson dares the fan to get in the ring. And then he says, if you get in the ring, I can legally kill you, which I don't think is true. No, no, it's not true. <laughs> can't, can't do that. That's not how it works. <laughs> I just love the Danielson. Like, unless unless, unless the- England has some crazy ass laws, I don't think it's true. Like maybe what he was trying to say is like, you know, if you step into the ring, I can legally defend myself. But I think he said like, I can legally kill you. I think he was just being, I think he was just being a heel. I, I know, but I just, just it's one of those things that just made me laugh. But, um, the camera then focuses on a blood drenched Nigel struggling to get to his feet as the crowd begins to chant for him. Nigel grabs a mic and says, all these pathetic Englishmen think you're a pretty tough guy. But then he says, that probably was the hardest world title match I've ever had. He says he thinks that Nigel deserves one more shot at the now unified ROH championship. And if Brian can get through past whoever he has to face for the title tomorrow, he's offering Nigel one more title shot. The crowd chants one more time. Nigel grabs the mic. 
He says, I'll kick, he says, one more time, I'll kick this Yankees ass. Sunshine, you got it. Nigel leads the crowd in ROH chant. We then get a still shot of Austin Aries landing awkwardly on a reverse Rana during the tag title match tonight. A gay voiceover tells us that ROH has late breaking news. Austin Aries has injured his ribs on the move and that he's been rushed to the hospital, which puts many matches for tomorrow night in question. Gabe says tomorrow is sure to be anarchy in the UK. And then we cut to a bloody Nigel McGuinness backstage, who says that was the toughest match of his goddamn life. He didn't take the title belt, but he took his pride and his respect for the business. At St. Paul, Minnesota, he's going to bring that and more. And for some reason, just the fact, I know that's where the next Danielson-Nigel match is, but just I love the idea after this dramatic London match, he asked the reference, it's all going to come to head at St. Paul, Minnesota. Like, what the fuck? But, um... Hey, yeah, it's, that it's, was, state, it's the state capital, man. Wade Keller will be there live. So um, that was unified. So I guess, Matt, to kind of return to a question at the start, did this sh- – I, I, I think this show was great. I think you know there was a bunch of average stuff, but I think the crowd elevated it, and I think there was two really great matches at the end of the night. Plus, I think I enjoyed the I enjoyed the tag, the the UK the Noah UK tag, and the, the Richards Rave match. But I guess the so I think this is a great show, one of the better shows of the year. But I will ask you the question we kind of started off with, which is, did this feel like an authentic show? When you didn't have Joe, when you didn't have Homicide, when you didn't have Christopher Daniels, in my opinion, it did. It felt like a, a weird, authentic Ring of Honor show. But I feel like they did enough by the end of the night, and the crowd actually made it feel like an authentic Ring of Honor show. It did feel like a big Ring of Honor show, and I think that's a huge win for the company, considering they had to do without all those guys. Yeah, I mean, it better feel authentic because all those guys are going to leave soon. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's been plenty of ROA shows where they haven't had the full roster. Plenty of shows where they've relied on some guests. Um, I think that the undercard, um, you know, like in the first half was weak enough that it wasn't like the best show of the year. You know, there's stuff from the WrestleMania yeah. weekend that just had more consistently great stuff. Um, but you're not going to get a better one-two punch than that uh, last two matches on this show. Plus, you know, there was at least one other match that I liked a lot. So I thought this was a, you know, a really, really, really good show. Um, you know, probably not the best of the year, but you know, the top tier for sure. And if it's one of the, if it's in the top tier for 2006, that means it's in the top tier in company history. So, so yeah, very, 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 very good show. With, I mean, I think two absolute classic matches to end the show. How many, how many shows can say that? Two classics to end the show. It almost goes back to like my thing about like if a match has like a special end, like does the rest of the match matter? Like the rest of the show could have been worse than it was if you end with. It was, I mean, it would have been at that point almost like WrestleMania ten, where you have like two blowaways. But I think it's more than WrestleMania ten undercard. Yeah, yeah, of, I, but but show. at the same time, I'm the sort of person that would rather have. A, I'd rather pay for a show that had two unbelievable matches than just like seven good matches you know what i mean like yeah i agree i i agree uh, g- give me something i'm going to remember like for a exactly. decade or more of, exactly um so as always if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com that's t-h-r-o-h for through at trevor dame on twitter at mayor mgf on twitter and i also want to plug a podcast that matt did 
um, that our listeners might like. Now, I, it's still in my queue. I've been so busy, got, and so I had to listen to a bunch of podcasts for this episode to do research. But Matt, you were on a show I've been on a couple of times, the uh, show with Quentin and uh, Tim. The, the Q, Q and which, T, Q and T podcast. Yeah. Yeah, the Q&T podcast on the We Don't Know Wrestling Podcast Network. You can get to their Twitter account for the show at Q-A-N-D-T-A-R-E. Q-N-T-R is how comes out is their Twitter. And you did a show covering the latest Ring of Honor pay-per-view. Matt Feuerstein on a podcast talking about Ring of Honor. Doing, doing modern uh, Ring of Honor. That's, it was, that's a rare treat for me, and I had a really good time. Yeah, like we obviously were a retro podcast. We're not talking about modern Ring of Honor. So if you want like the rare thrill of one of us talking about modern Ring of Honor, I can't wait actually to listen to that. Yeah, and, I, and, I'm, and always... I'm actually curious if you ever do listen because uh, there's a, a conversation that I that I bring up on that show that I'd definitely be curious to hear your thoughts on. But I will let the Boxers listeners and Bruce. Trevor hear it for themselves. And uh, finally, I also want to thank again, Alan, if you're listening to this in 2028, thank you so much. I know you weren't feeling great. Thank you so much for giving your time. Matt, you weren't feeling great. I know you got a busy time coming up. Yeah, thank I, I, you I, I, for I apologize me. if you hear any coughs or sneezes. I tried to mute it and I will go, I through, didn't hear yeah, and I will go through to double check. But if, if, so, if something slips through, I apologize. Matt, you sounded great. Honestly, you guys, you guys did better than this 100% healthy person. So sure, sure, next time so. I'm on the show, we will be covering the second half of this ROH special UK double shot anarchy in the UK. What do you do when two of your big stars and Austin Aries and Nigel McGuinness get hurt and you have to completely shift the cards. You have Brian Danielson work two matches. Um, so that's <laughs> for that. <laughs> so until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.